So I think that in quote-unquote Western civilization, whatever you want to call it, autism and, and the autist, uh, you know, uh, genetic profile ruling everything is much older than we give it credit for today. What, what do you see in court culture in medieval Europe? They always had to have somebody open the doors for them. They didn't like looking people in the eyes. They loved elaborate rituals constantly. Everything about them was the most autistic thing ever. So this is where the idea of cat ladies came from. Like, it, it right. specifically evolved to denigrate anyone who used pets to masturbate their child-rearing instinct. The effective altruism movement, the, the faction that's like utility accountants, evolved out of the Jewish tradition to the extent that it could be seen as secular Judaism. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Malcolm Collins. I'm really excited to bring you this episode because I wasn't aware of Malcolm until he first reached out to me. But through this podcast, I think we got in deep to where we agree, where we disagree, and to the intricacies of our models of the world. Something I think that makes for the best of From the New World episodes. It is, after all, a more than three hour long podcast. We discuss... Western culture, memes, the Hicksite Quakers, psychiatry, fashion, effective altruism, pronatalism and birth rates, gene culture coevolution, trads, eschatology, historicism, and the nature of good and evil. Without further ado, I bring you Malcolm Collins. Western culture, overrated or underrated? Oh, wow. I don't want to under underrated, maybe. I mean, from my perspective, because I'm a member of Western culture, what I would say is that people who are members of Western culture often underrate how important that culture is to shaping their views and their world perspective and how truly different and alien different cultural perspectives are. Right. Which is interesting, right? Because most cultures, I think, overrate their own, their own culture. It's, it's very rare that people, you know, try not to attribute things, not to attribute positive things and to attribute negative things to the, their culture. Usually it's the other direction. People are very, um, very willing to, I know for sure, uh, my family is Chinese, uh, Many Chinese people are willing to attribute many things that were not invented by China as uh, invented by China and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, Western culture, as we understand it today, certainly has a masochistic streak. Um, but I think that that's somewhat core to the traditions that that, that make it up. Um, I mean, so it's it's funny if you look at, a, you know, historically speaking, um, if you consider Western culture to be heavily over overlapped with Christian culture, there was this freak out in the Christian community when, um, you know, Constantine made it, uh, you know, like the the religion of the empire because they couldn't get martyred anymore. And this was like a really important thing for them. Um, and this is when the ascetic like monk thing started because this was the new equivalent to martyrdom for them because they couldn't figure out another way to do that yeah it's interesting because this is something that i've not i don't think i've fully understood where what's the sort of motivation or not just motivation but um what's the kind of social structure there right when people are looking to asceticism or looking to martyrdom um 
what what happens in someone's mind that says, oh, someone is looking for that kind of opportunity, looking for that kind of sacrifice, and we're going to assign it a positive value? Like, what is the process in which someone starts to think that that's a positive thing? Well, I mean, I think you see this even with like pop stars, you know, like if a pop star kills themselves, like a bunch of young people will start killing themselves. Um, We are dealing with a cultural tradition that was really started with someone martyring themselves. Of course, uh, martyrdom is going to play a major role in the modern iteration of that cultural tradition. Although I would say when I say that Western culture is underrated, I I would say a way it's hugely overrated is – that people massively, massively, massively underestimate how many different unique and competing cultural strains there are within Western culture and how deeply and distantly those strains go back. Right. That was actually something that I wrote down right away when you said it. You said traditions, right? So actually, let's just let's just lay out that all, all at the same time. Like, what are the different traditions? Uh, just a brief summary, and then we can go into them each of them later on. So, yeah, the book we just released, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, um, we coined this term cultivar. And what we think of that is is a sort of mimetic package that is not really a religion and not really a culture, but it's sort of a combination of the two. And it is unique when compared with the way we think of memetics today. When you think of memetics today, you think of like a meme or a memetic package infecting someone, and then that person infects other people with it. But historically, that was actually pretty rare. The way the memetic packages primarily spread historically was they would affect a person and they would augment their biological fitness, the number of surviving offsprings they had that that, that kept that memetic package. Um, And so this allowed uh, people to almost sort of co-evolve. It allowed... Uh, uh, the way some person said it's like your biology, the the preferences that are augmented at the biological and genetic level are sort of like your firmware. And this is like your object-oriented sort of software that that is doing some more advanced features. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's a number of strains, but there's, but there's almost such a, a huge number of strains. So we sometimes talk about the most important strains in modern tradition. So uh, if you look at like modern Western culture – I would say probably uh, a, a really important, two really important strains to note in terms of breaks. One was the Reformation. And this is really when you had mm. two groups that had a, a, a disagreement about how truth should be interpreted. And one group said uh, truth should be determined by people or is most efficiently determined by people who spend their entire lives studying it. But of course, if you do that, then you need some sort of central bureaucracy to sort of uh, uh, rank these people and mediate the truth that's coming out of them. And then the other group said, well, that central bureaucracy is subject to corruption. So even if it is more efficient, it's ultimately a worse way to determine truth. And this was the core of what the Protestant Reformation was. And yet we see this same divide within our culture today. And you actually see the same sides within a secular perspective playing out with the 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 you know the Catholic and the Orthodox cultivars that largely centered in urban centers, uh, saying, "Hey guys, you you should really be determining truth based on expert consensus," and the other side saying that's not a good way to determine truth. Then the other core uh, uh, division, I'd say, that happened 
was if you're looking at early American history, it's the Calvinist versus Quaker division. Um, so these are both Protestant groups that said truth is best determined at the, like the personal level. Um, and I think that the epitome of the differences between these truths is shown in the way that they would host their meetings. So the Calvinist meetings, you would go to a room and any preacher talking to you could potentially corrupt truth. So you would often not have a preacher. Everyone would just sit down and read their Bible and it was personal independent study. And then within the Quaker meetings, uh, uh, the, the truth came from within. It was like a fire that burned within every person. And it was, it was, it was their sort of emotional compass pointed towards the truth. So you'd have everybody sit in the room. You wouldn't have the preacher either, but then people would stand up when they were personally motivated to talk and they would say whatever they were personally motivated to say. And, um, one of the things we argue in the book is that it seems very likely that one strain of Quakerism, Hicksite Quakerism is actually what evolved into what we think of wokest culture. And you can see many, uh, weird, um, I forget the word for these vestigial organs of Hicksite Quakerism reappearing in wokeism, like the way they organize their meetings. So for example, the way the Quaker meeting house right. worked <laughs> looks a lot like the way an Occupy Wall Street meeting house works. And I can get into more of the vestigial uh, organs if, if that's interesting to you, but yeah. Yeah. Are those, are those historical uh, connections or are those just similar are they co-evolution or are they historically evolved? Right. Yeah. So we argue it's not co-evolution and we go through a number of chains of evidence. One, Mm. there's just too many weird ones that don't really make sense for it to be totally co-evolution. So, so more broadly, just to take a step back, how could a weird sect of Quakerism ended up uh, evolving to like a major cultural subset um, they had huge control over our education system, especially the education system of the elite in the Northeastern United States for a long period of time. So it makes sense that they could begun to plant the seeds of this um, uh, in, in sort of a, a cultural background way. But then if you look at the weird things that they co-evolved, so uh, Quakerism had this weird thing where they would respect the opinions of young people more than the opinions of adults often. And they would even have young people morally chastise adults and almost no other culture in the world does that. Yet this is something we see reemerge with figures like Greta Thunberg. Um, then you also see a, 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 another really weird part of, of the Quakerism tradition is they didn't judge their moral standing. And I think that this is how wokeism evolved out of it because it's a very unique cultural thing. They didn't judge whether or not they were being moral based on their actual actions in the real world. They judged whether or not they were being moral based on the aesthetics sort of of how they were engaging with the world. So an example of this is when many people today think of Quakers, they think of being anti-slavery. However, if you look at wills from the period, or if you look at cultural, uh, like, like meeting house, uh, the Quaker slave ownership rate was between 70 and 40%, like astronomically higher than the highest slave ownership rate in the South. Um, and, and they've just swept this under the rug, like, oh no, we were not. And even the people in their community thought of them as being uniquely slaveholding. So the Amish, uh, there's been some interviews and apparently they thought of slavery as like a uniquely Quaker institution. Anyway, I could go. Yeah, that kind of that kind of deep dive, I think, is great. That's very interesting. 
I think you definitely see some parallels, right? Arthur Salzberger literally being an heir, right? Literally being mm-hmm. representative of both the kind of old money 1% on the economic side, as well as, of course, being a white guy on uh, on the kind of racial side. You, you do kind of start to see these parallels, these kind of similar double standards that are happening. Um, speaking of going a step back, I guess, something that I've talked about a few times on this podcast is the kind of methodology you get in order to get, in order to try to observe historical parallels, right? What kind of criteria do you have for thinking about whether a historical parallel is uh, maybe one of three things, although there might be more, is either a kind of a direct descendant, a a similar kind of situation, right? So maybe co-evolution, or maybe mm-hmm. this is just a similar response to a set of conditions, or say an accident of history. How do you, what evidence do you look for to tell the difference between these three possibilities? Okay. Great. So accidents of history, I don't think you can control for it. You're just looking for numbers of coincidences that don't make sense with coevolution. Um, the way you distinguish between coevolution and, and vestigial organs is, did it make sense for this to re-evolve again? So, or, or is this even counter to what you would expect to re-evolve? So a very unique aspect of Quakerism that was not prevalent in the other cultures of the time um, was extreme prudishness. So if you look at the Calvinists who were their, you know, I'd say like the primary contrast to them, they were, and this is often misremembered, people think of the Puritans who were the Calvinist branch as being um, like really prude. However, they were actually like so sex engaged, and they talk about this in Albion Seed actually, uh, that up until the 20th century, their texts had to largely be censored whenever they would talk about sex because they just go balls to the wall with it. Whereas it was common for like Quaker women to when they would get, um, uh, you know, medically examined, they would call everything from their, their feet to their waist, their ankle, and everything from their, like, waist to their shoulders, their their um, chest or, or waist, uh, because they were so uncomfortable talking about that. And this is something you see again within the wokest movement is this incredible uncomfort with sexuality, with, with all the sex negativism you see within it, which really doesn't make sense when you consider their really tight alliance with with both the LGBT with the LGBT movement and and movements that you would think are largely sex positive, sorry that that's interesting. Um, what do you mean? Who do you, what do you mean by wokeism here? Right? Which who are the people who are actually sex negative? Right? Because because I think most organizations you already mentioned them right, like the LGBT stuff right, would mostly be associated with sex positivity. Yeah, so you you would. So, okay, so I, I guess I have to go. So what we argue is we call it the virus. So it's not exactly wokeism. So there was a progressive strain of culture in the U.S. and there was a conservative strain of culture in the U.S. Um, and these cultures, uh, in a previous guest you had, they were like, it, it seems weird, like the cluster of things we associate with conservatism and the cluster of things we associate with, with liberalism, like they're an unlo- alliance of people who don't, who really shouldn't be allied. But I argue that's not really true. Uh, conservatism versus liberalism is the difference in optimization functions. So the progressive movement, or not liberal is the wrong one to use, progressive movement is largely optimizing for intragenerational quality of life and agency. 
so that so individual people who are alive today should have the best quality of life possible and have the most individual agency possible. Whereas the conservative tradition is optimizing for intergenerational cultural fitness um, and fidelity. And so they see like the primary unit of account as being the cultural unit. And so that's why they would focus on things like being anti-abortion or anti-gay, because both of those things lower birth rates, but also anti-government inter- intervention, at least on them as a cultural unit, because that could interfere with their ability to pass that culture on to future generations um, through things like uh, 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 food drives and stuff like that, which are very socialist in nature. But when the government starts offering alternatives to that, it really hurts them. And we saw this as the Shakers. The Shakers did really well as a cultural unit until the government started offering state-sponsored orphanages. And then they went extinct within like a generation because they were against sex. Um, but then, wait, I forgot where I was going with this. So we were talking about um, wokeism and sex negativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, okay, okay. Um, so, so you had these two cultural units. You had the conservative, which was intergenerational cultural fitness, and the intergenerational quality of life unit. Wokeism evolved out of a religious uh, tradition, but it isn't a full sort of ideology. It's it's very parasitic. The way we would describe it is in dogs. There's something called a venereal uh, tr- transmissible venereal canine tumors, and this is a tumor that developed in a dog like, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago or something like that. And it was actually, long story, very interesting. But anyway, it, it, it evolved to be uh, uh, transmissible to other dogs. And so it's still all around the world today. And it's, it's, it's um, in a way, you could argue that it is the most prolific dog in the world, even though the breed it was from is totally extinct. And so wokeism is a religion in the same way canine uh, venereal transmissible tumors are a dog, um, and wokeism has only recently hollowed out a lot of movements, this, 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 this virus, um, that was not part of those movements before. So it hollowed out, you know, the feminist movement, it hollowed out Occupy Wall Street, um, and it replaced their internal organs with organs that were just meant to convert more people and not meant to efficaciously carry out their missions. Right, right. So... If you were to describe, actually, before we get to that, I really appreciate actually the the dog tumor analogy. I wasn't sure where you were going to that. I know a lot of people call it a virus, but I think that for the audience, it distinguishes a very important property, which is this kind of like weird, uh, weird transition, weird, weird kind of like um, almost metamorphosis, right? From a from an ideology that is supposed to accomplish things to an ideology that is, um, in my view, primarily status-oriented. I'm not sure if um, this is the same as yours, but in your view, certainly uh, designed mm-hmm. to like kind of blindly reproduce itself. Yeah, yeah, no, it is largely status-oriented, or I'd say even more than status-oriented, it's weirdly aesthetically oriented. Like, if you look at, like, the Black Lives Matter movement... And and when it was found out that, like, a bunch of that money was basically just used for, like, mansions and stuff like that, um, people didn't really freak out about that on the left. Like, they were not that angry about that. And the reason they weren't that angry about it is it was never actually the point to make things better on, on, on racial equality lines. It was the point to aesthetically care about that. That's what determined how good the movement was and how good they were as people, not their efficacious action in the real world. 
Right, right. Yeah, this is a very important parallel. Um, so, yeah, the, the question that I was going to ask is like, what's hmm, we actually we actually kind of answered it, right? These kind of aesthetics. But if you were to try to define um, wokeism in in a sentence, or maybe in a two or three, how would you do that? Well, I, I think it's a it's a package of things like like a a tumor. So you can't if you overly define it. And I'd say wokeism was one of the things that was infected by this tumor and converted by it. But it is the biggest thing that was infected by this tumor. So we I, I identify it most as being this thing. But this thing infected many organizations, including conservative organizations, to some extent. Um, so I, I'd say that it has some features. Justicalism is one of the features. So justicalism is a term we defined, and it's where you as an individual determine what is true in the world based by what would be just if it was true. So if you are asked, um, do men and women have sort of like systemic uh, differences in, in sort of like the way they approach the world or cognitive differences, right? And, and, and you, you don't ask yourself, like, what does the science say? What do my experiences say? You ask yourself, what would be more just if it was true? Yeah, that that definitely seems like a property that's maybe on the rise. Um, so how what's the, what's the kind of origin story here? Right, we talked about uh, Quakerism. We talked about how it as a process infects institutions. What was that kind of leap? Right, what was that kind of leap from sort of functionality to sort of transmissibility? I. I... So it happened with the Hicksite Quakers. Okay, so okay, I gotta go back. Yeah, we so, we can Quaker dive deep tradition. into this. Let's go. <laughs> okay, um, so we talked about like the larger Quaker tradition, which is that they believed in like personal emotion truths. But most Quakers at the time still believed that the Bible trumped like your personal emotional interpretation of reality. Then there was this branch of called the Hicksite Quakers, and they said no, actually. Like the personal emotional truth that you feel is of higher order truth than even the Bible. Um, and, and, oh and, they, and they believed this at a community level, not at an individual level. So whatever the community believed was emotionally true was what was actually true about reality. Um, and they staged this sort of coup against other Quakers. So the Hicksite Quaker movement sort of grew as in the Quaker movement. And then they would start doing things like, the the what they were called as the Orthodox or the Conservative Quakers would would come to the meeting houses and they'd be locked out, like literally locked out of the meeting houses because the Hicksite Quakers would try to control, control, control more and more, and then they would start locking out the old factions. And it, it's very similar to what you see when an organization when it's overly infected by this cancer that sort of came out of this is they 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 grow quietly in the background until they feel they have control, and then they lock everyone else out. Um. And uh, from there, because Quakers disproportionately control the education system, because they really did disproportionately have control of the education system because they had a better education system. So they believed because of their interpretation said, well, truth is determined like within the human spirit, within the human flame, um, then kids have the most of this flame. And so they would go and they would, uh, uh, you, you, can, you can best sort of meditate or engage with truth by engaging with children and helping them sort of nurture themselves in the same way that like uh, the Jewish 
understanding of truth is probably best understood by the cultural conversation. Like the, uh, I, I forget mm, the word yes. for this, but they have this practice where they will have a, a debate between themselves over scripture, like between two or three people. And I sort of say that that's their version almost of like the, the, the Calvinist reading alone or the Quakers standing up and saying your emotional truth. Sorry, I, I got distracted again. No, it's fine. All of this, you know, I think it's actually quite nice. It's it's rolling into a story. So these Hickside Quakers, they have this kind of they have this kind of proto bureaucratic um, discussion norms. They take over the education system. Um, what what makes them able to do that? Right? You know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Taking yeah, over the, the education system. system okay. Was let's that talk easy. about. Yeah, go oh, ahead. So exciting. Okay, how did they take over the education? So one, they were already predominantly within the education system, but a lot of people assume that that sort of this wokest thing evolved within the college system, but it really didn't. Um, and and, and it, so let's talk about like how wokeism works and the cultural innovations it had that made it so successful. So society can really be thought as a connection of like nodal networks. So every human is a node and they have connections to other nodes and there's these like nodal clouds and sometimes nodal clouds overlap. These can be organizations, these can be religions, these can be many other things. Um, and uh, uh, sometimes corruptions can sort of spread and these corruptions are when, when nodes are flipping to being parts of new networks or new beliefs about the world. So historically, the way a nodal cloud dealt with nodes flipping, so like if I was in like a Catholic country and like Protestants moved into my network, or I was in a Protestant country and Catholics moved into my network, you would just kill the node, delete the node. That was what they did, usually (laughs) painfully. Um, But what the virus evolved was this really fascinating new, new, new thing, which was shadow banning. So a lot of people associate wokeism with cancel culture, but actually cancellation is fairly rare and it's mostly used as a, a, a scare tactic. Uh, the, the real core cultural innovation is, and, and historically it wasn't just like when people moved from other cultures into their space. Like if somebody was a witch, what they were really saying is this person has different beliefs about how the world works, burn them, right? Like they're dangerous to our nodal network. Um, and so uh, what the, virus does, which is in many ways a kinder solution, is it slowly deprioritizes, not slowly, sometimes very quickly, deprioritizes every connection within the nodal cloud that they control to the corrupted node. So if, you know, um, somebody says something off message, or if even a fact is off message, like a study comes out that's off message, they basically deprioritize that node's connections to everything else. And this prevents other nodes that are connected from that node or who have sympathies with that node from overly reacting. Um, and it's been incredibly effective and it's incredibly hard to get around. And it shows why, uh, you know, uh, Elon, when he acquired Twitter to, to sort of cleanse it, he basically had to perform an exterminatus. Like there, there was no other way to cleanse the network. Right. What's actually for, for like a brief moment for the audience, right? Um, Go into a little bit more detail on what it practically looks like to deprioritize those other networks or deprioritize those other nodes. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I get what you're saying, but like, what, what's like a practical example of this? Happening? So suppose a dean at Harvard, right? Like he is a big person in a position of power within this infrastructure. Um, he then decides, like, maybe women 
are not in STEM as much for like biological reasons. And he says this in a speech, and this is something that happened. Then the nodes uh, that are connected to him, like his position of power, they start to route around him. Um, and they remove him as quickly as they can and as quietly as they can. Um, but this happens within companies as well. If somebody hears you say something like, quote unquote, problematic, what you're seeing happen there is it's almost like an antigen is tagging you as a potential foreign invader. And then like the white blood cells know, and they use these tagging words like problematic. This could offend people. And then the white blood cells come and they begin to... Uh, uh, instead of swallowing you like they did in, in, in previous neural networks, they begin to say, uh, uh, just, just connect to this person a little left. Here's another person you should be connecting to. Here's another person you should be connecting to. And anyone who's ever said something mildly moderate was in like a, a modern tech or corporate setting has seen this happen to them with, for, for, for some extent. Right. It's a kind of ostracization. It is kind of like, you know, the psychiatric stereotype of like an abusive uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, right? You know, yes. you're 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 trying. You know, it's it's the Yandere virus. You're trying to keep <laughs> your your <laughs> yeah. You're you're trying to keep all of this person, this target, away from all of the all of the other uh, people who he or she would be otherwise uh, otherwise connected with. But <laughs> I, I actually want to pull on something you said there because you know I talk about how like almost religions and stuff like that can evolve out of other settings. The, the, the psychiatric thing, which you've talked about before, I think that's a really interesting sort of new religion that's evolved that is actually quite damaging to people's mental health. Go on. Okay. Uh, so, well, so this actually happened. I was, I was walking around with some people who were very educated, like very high level in society. And they were talking to each other and they were like, Oh yeah, I would never date anyone who's not seeing a psychiatrist. <laughs> and this freaked me out. I mean, my background training is in psychiatry and neuroscience. Like that's, and in psychiatry, you are taught how dangerous psychiatry is, like how quickly you can accidentally brainwash somebody. Um, and this was seen during the huge scandal around um, hypnosis in psychiatry, right? It was found like that people were accepting people's beliefs and we were all told to stop doing that. Um, be very careful. And, and, and basically people forgot there was this movement in the psych movement in pop culture that was like, trust psychiatry. Psychiatry is good. Don't shame people for psychiatry. And that was really important. But then it became like a don't question anything that happens in a psychiatrist's office. That was really bad. What these people had been essentially incepted to believe is that a person couldn't be mentally healthy without seeing a psychiatrist. That's what they were saying when they're saying, I won't date somebody who's not seeing a psychiatrist. And that is at its core, the opposite of what should be going on in a psychiatrist's office. When you go to an office and you're going to a psychiatrist, you're essentially rewriting yourself narrative, right? Um, you're, you're trying to rewrite yourself narrative in a way. So you encounter fewer problems in the way that self narrative sort of interacts with your daily life. However, the psychiatrists have the option if they want to, to incept you to believe that you can never be mentally healthy. They, they, they build this into your sense your self narrative, unless you continue seeing the psychiatrist. And right, this right. version of psychiatry <laughs> ended up outcompeting other versions of psychiatry simply because it had higher return rates. Um, and what's fascinating is how similar, when I was younger, I used to really like signing up for cults to try to understand how they recruited people, how, 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 how similar the modern practice of psychiatry is to the practice of Scientology. 
what Scientologists will do, if you've ever gone to one of their Seton readings or anything like that, is they'll, uh, like, they basically <laughs> treat you to like a psychiatry session and then they try to incept trauma into you. They're like, I bet you had trauma mm. with your parents. I bet you had trauma here. Like they try to reinterpret something you have told them as traumatic and then say, now you need to see me again to get rid of this trauma. And this is something you see within not all psychiatry, but definitely within a faction of psychiatry today, where they are essentially incepting their clients with trauma. And, and what's really fascinating is you can see this in like rape and stuff like this. And a really interesting thing is, is that if you look at somebody who grows up in a culture where like rape is normal, they actually have a much lower like mental and, 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 and psychological like PTSD almost reaction to their rape than in a culture where it is not considered normal. And you can actually see this with this phenomenon that's called forgetting before remembering that is the most common form of suppressed memory, which is somebody will say, tell to somebody else, I suppress this memory of my rape. And it's very traumatic to me. And now it like is, is a huge part of, of this trauma I'm feeling. And the person's like, dude, you told me about like your creepy uncle who used to touch you weird all the time. And what's happening there is they were contextualizing it before they contextualized it as rape as something else. And it wasn't terribly traumatic to them. But then when they were like, oh, my God, this is this thing my society calls rape, it begins to have all these negative mental effects on them because they have been told that they are supposed to contextualize it as traumatic. Um, and, and what is interesting about the psychiatry profession is like a faction of it evolved, not like I don't think anyone consciously realized this, to realize that they can accept almost anything as traumatic into a person and then make that person reliant on them. Yeah, th that's definitely interesting. I think something, actually the number one idea, I think, the, the idea that I think everyone would most strongly benefit from drawing on from the kind of like paleo conservative uh, community. I don't know if they consider themselves a community. Um, it is the idea that a lot of progressivism is trying to characterize what's normal and good as unhealthy and needing and needing to be surgically removed. Like that that kind of idea, that kind of like idea of the moral inversion, right? The idea that we're going to actually turn the tables we're going to create normal functionality or we're going to take normal functionality and turn it into a dependency uh, categorize it as a dependency and vice versa uh, i think that that's yeah that's very similar to what you've been saying i think very similar to um i mean really what you see what you see in many areas right whether it's whether it's psychiatry i mean i'm quite frankly less experienced and that certainly than you probably than, than most people. Um, but also, you know, in politics, for sure, I think this is true, both on the left and right, that these kind of like development of um, recurring behaviors, I think this is actually a well known result in, in political science, right, people who are actually um, uh, constantly, you know, going participating in an institution, uh, are much more likely to be loyal to it, whether it's a church or a union, right, so this is kind of widespread. And I think here we're getting to, I don't know, because I'll, I'll put my, I'll put my cards on the table here. Here, to me, this feels like a sense of convergent evolution or a sense of, quite frankly, just finding like the optimal strategy, right? Because in a lot of these cases, right, what you're doing or what these ideologies are doing by categorizing the normal as um, as profane and categorizing, um, quite frankly, the profane as normal, right, is 
it's creating these sort of recurring structures. It's creating these participatory institutions where there were none before. And to me, like, this is just in terms of, like, political strategy, like, you can pull this out of a political science textbook and say, like, oh, what would you want to do, you know, just from a purely, you know, political science perspective, if you had a group of people who, you know, were considering um, taking an action that would result in them being medically uh, dependent for the rest of their lives and, and having to um, constantly re-engage with these institutions that were half activist groups and half, you know, um, various kinds of medical surgeries, right? And the political science answer is like, of course you want people to be like constantly re-engaging with your institutions. So in many of these cases, right, you just have what really pays off is like getting people to come back again and again and again. And I mean, linking this back to the previous discussion, right? That's why I'm more of an advocate for, oh, people have just discovered, you know, like the best way to do politics. Yeah, so I love this. I would take a slightly alternate framing when we think about what's traditionally good. You know, if we think about like mimetic sets is sort of these like evolving blobs within this larger nodal network, a lot of the traditional mimetic sets evolved to increase the fitness of the people they infected. Um, and this is how you get something like Islam and Judaism coming to the idea of like hand washing, like hundreds of years before the secular world through like science figured out that hand washing is, is, is useful in preventing the, the, the spread of diseases. But an almost universal thing you will find was in any of these evolutionarily successful cultural units is a desire to shame and frame as threatening anything that is threatening to it right Right. um and so when they are attacking these these healthier sort of older cultural units when when like the larger virus is attacking them it's attacking them because they're a genuine threat to it and it needs to undermine that threat but within all cultural units this is where ideas like cringe come from like when people say like something is cringe what they mean is it does not align with with the cultural subset that they ascribe to and, and therefore they are shaming it because that cultural subset has like it's using them as part of their reproductive process and part of its like defensive process and it is is using them as like a human avatar to prevent these potentially dangerous or at least new ideas from spreading in a way that could undermine it right right so in this conceptualization, how important is fashion? How important is what? How is important is fashion? Fashion. Um, I mean, I think it's very important, but in a really interesting way. So with fashion, it's where you see something that I would call cultural drift. Um, and it's, it's a great place where you can look to observe cultural drift. So cultural drift is this concept. Let's use Goss as an example, right? So... Um, when you are part of a subculture within a larger society, your status within that hierarchy is often determined by how much you signal you are part of that culture in a way that would have you rejected by larger society. So when a goth meets another goth, their relative status in relation to each other is determined by how much they are signaling they are a goth in a way that would have them rejected by mainstream society. Um, and what ends up happening is you get these spirals 
where uh, cultures end up going so, so, so far was how much you have to signal to really play this cultural hierarchy game um, over a period of time that subcultures end up dying off. Um, and I actually think that you are seeing this to some extent um, within, uh, you know, for example, aspects of the LGBT movement, where you need to signal that you're LGBT in a way that would have you shamed by what they view as like their culturally competing strains so that they know that you really are, which is like weird when it's, you know, it used to be this movement that was just about striving for acceptance. Right, right. I mean, this is this is one of the debate points, right? Like, was it always a kind of counter signal, right? Was it always a kind of signal that you're part of the in-group by embracing something that's repulsed by the out-group, right? Or, or was there... Like, was that always kind of like the driving political force behind it, right? Because you you would not, you know, you would not expect that randomly, um, quite frankly, like, it was, I'm trying to, to find a way to phrase this in, like, the most wide-ranging of terms, but essentially, like, the kind of culture of homosexuality was around for much longer than the kind of legalistic definition, right? I, I it was not, it's actually, not like the, complete, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so one of or two of our past books are the pragmatist guide to sexuality and the pragmatist guide to relationships. And in the pragmatist guide to sexuality, we argue that sexuality is actually like way more complicated than like a gay straight divide. And that actually like it is, it is so common for a person to have like an attraction to like secondary sex characteristics of one gender and primary sex characteristics of another gender that like, it doesn't really make sense. You should almost think of it as like this quadrant thing um, instead of just like gay versus straight. And even the gay versus straight dichotomy really came because the predominant early sex researchers were male. If the predominant early sex researchers were female, the predominant determinant of attractor in, in, in females is not, uh, whether or not the person looks more like a male than or a female, it, it is more common in our survey data uh, whether or not the person was dominant or submissive. And, and that would have been like their predominant like sexual divide. But anyway, to, to, to go back, gayness is really a, a cultural thing as we define it today. This concept of you are either gay or bi or straight. It's actually sexuality is like a huge complicated switchboard. But that's not the way because a culture built around anybody who had a sexuality that expressed itself in a way that had society attack them. Um, now, I would say that originally these cultures, even, even the trans movement, were all like real things. You know, people who were born this way and who were oppressed for, for trying to act on the way they were born. But then um, this culture, this, this subculture became so associated with the progressive movement that it began to culturally bleed into the progressive movement and people realized right. that they could move up within like mainstream culture by pretending. And you've even seen like politicians like accused of this and pretending to be gay when they're not gay or pretending to be trans when they're not trans. Um, and, and I actually think that one of the groups that has been hurt the most by this is like the actual gay and trans community because they've had their identity in easy talking points of like, I just don't want you to oppress or like kill me or hurt me like stripped from them because it's now used as like a status symbol signaling mechanism by a political faction. 
Yeah, and that is also, you know, weaponized in uh, law and weaponized in bureaucracies, right? Uh, Richard yeah. Nanya, has, who's been on the show, has talked about this frequently. So even if, you know, people had no no kind of, like, inherent reason to be against uh, gay people, having them used or having that status used as a cudgel in order to enforce really these kind of, like, totalitarian edicts, in many of these HR laws. Yeah. I, I think that that in and of itself definitely creates a kind of rift there. Well, yeah. And imagine how you would feel, you know, especially if like a gay person who probably sacrificed so much, like an older gay person to just be allowed to live your life and marry who you want to marry. And then these young people go on and, and co-opt your movement and use it as like the new version of being a goth or something. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is like half of Andrew Sullivan's stuff now, right? This is like how 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 the how the LGBT movement left me, or so on and so forth, right? Yeah, I do think there's there is something very interesting happening here, though, on a kind of like strategic level, on a kind of game theoretic level, maybe, right? And what's happening here is that there seems to be something that draws what you call wokeism to these new movements and allows it to find these kind of like cultural movements that are influential or are going to be influential. Um, how exactly does it do that? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. So, um, and this, this comes down to our larger thing. So we talk a lot about birth rates. We talk a lot about um, in our, in our latest book, the heritability of um uh voting patterns right um and this is actually like a big thing so i am a strictly conservative person like i i align very tightly with the conservative party today however even i am concerned given that we know that voting patterns are like 60 percent heritable by the the systemic deletion of the progressive mindset from the gene pool um, and the progressive mindset is so susceptible to these or, or the progr- like, like this larger virus because the virus targets anyone or any group that has largely pro-social motivations. It's like, oh, you want to make the world a better place. So older viruses, like there were many older like mimetic viruses, they would target the individual, you know, uh, you know, like whether it's MGTOW or Red Pillism, it's like we can make your life better as an individual. Right? This says, no, 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 no. It targets the entire nodal network at once. It says, we will remove emotional pain from this nodal network. And, and that message really sells a lot better to any movement that has pro-social tendencies. The problem is, is that pro-sociality, altruism, these things have been shown in, in studies that look like polygenic risk scores to be highly uh, heritable. And so if, if, if you are disproportionately, uh, as we say, mimetically sterilizing these populations, this is going to have a huge outcome on the way humanity changes in the near future. Right. I mean, you've almost got me cheering for wokeness now, right? <laughs> um, no, yeah. so, okay. Well, I'm going to take a step back. Let's talk about genetics. Because it gets a little scary when you start looking at the genetics of this. So I, at first, didn't really care that birth rates were that differentiated between groups. 
Um, my sort of read was, okay, the population will crash and we can get, we definitely need to get the population crash at some point in this, but the population will crash and, um, the religiosity, because I was looking and it was the religious communities that were still breeding. And we know religiosity has a, is a heritable uh, thing. Um, that, that, that will be selected for, it will get stronger and, and, and that'll just be humanity in the future. And I believe I have a strong, like religiosity, like genetic tendency. So I'm not worried about that. Like a lot of religiosity is great. Then we actually started looking at the data and what it turned out is being having this sort of like religious fervor doesn't really protect you and keep you within these mimetic clusters that maintain a high birth rate. And of course I should have known this. If you hang out in the atheist community, like the old skeptic community, (laughs) you would know that many of the people who converted to atheism were the most religious people before that. And you see it in the far progressive movement. These people clearly have this religiosity genetic cluster so it's what is keeping people what is protecting people from converting out of these movements and what it appears to be is an intrinsic nature to dehumanize anyone who's not within that movement it it, (laughs) yeah what we found in our study, and there was another study that also found that it's basically like racism, extreme a hierarchy within your movement. Um, it's called, if you look it up, like they all correlate with something called the uh, right-leaning authoritarian personality cluster. However, the right-leaning authoritarian cluster appears in both the right and the left. So people in Antifa probably have this, what's called the right-leaning authoritarian cluster. It basically means a tendency to not want to listen to any view that's not within your existing mimetic set. And this is really bad for the future of humanity. If you think about how our species, we're not going towards like an idiocracy. We're going to like an isisocracy where you're going to have a bunch of groups. And I don't mean like in a Muslim context. What I mean is like a bunch of groups of different religious strains that all hate each other and dehumanize each other and don't really care about the long-term future of humanity. But this time they have nukes. Um, (laughs) It's bad. And I can get into some, there's a really interesting study that'll be coming out that, that, that goes into, it looks at educational attainment, polygenic risk scores in, in people who were in like the early uh, Roman period. And then like the, like after the Roman empire, and you, you do see that this has happened many times in human history before when an empire rises um, and you likely saw this in Athens and in Rome and in the Enlightenment. You have this short period of like three or four generations where like people largely accept people of different views and people are become more accepting of like LGBT views. And and then you have an extreme course correction because these people don't have kids. Um, and uh, this has happened many times throughout human history and we're about to hit another dark age. And it's it's not good. Yeah, I mean... A lot of what's um, this has actually been an interesting area that I've been thinking about here because I'm, I mean, I think in terms of like an extreme kind of pendulum swing, it would not necessarily be good. But I think certainly today, um, a lot of of EAs and and some philosophers in general have this idea of like the moral circle, right? Of expanding the moral circle to include. More people, uh, sometimes also animals, sometimes also shrimp, as delicious as shrimp may be, <gasps> right? <laughs> well, okay, so I want to I dive into yeah. this. So um, I had this tweet. I, 
my 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 claim to fame was this 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 chain if it was retweeted by um Vitalik and I was like, oh yes, important people care about what I have to say. But what I was saying is the core of the Sam Bakeman Freed thing is he really represented. So I think there's two sort of factions within the EA movement right now or the rationalist movement. And one faction is is, is sort of views um y- utility as as sort of being like utility accountants, I call them. And they're looking, I mean, they're very this intra-generational quality of life movement. They're looking at improving the quality of life throughout the world, like like these accountants. And they have been incredibly infiltrated by the Sand Bakeman Freeds of the world who cared about um uh 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 making themselves look good and not really about anything other than virtue signaling. And and as evidence for this. Uh, if you look at the advisors of um, the FTX fund, uh, you had um, what we know, the future guy, and you had Leopold Scott, you know, both of who, Leopold, whatever, both of whom uh, first, were like- The first is Will McCaskill, right? Yeah, except their movements had never donated to anything pronatalism. And I know that because we run pronatalist.org and we had tried to get money from them multiple times. And the reason they never donated to anything pronatalist related, and like we know everyone in the pronatalist space- it's because it was morally complicated and they just weren't interested in being involved in that, even though it's like an existential threat to our species right now. And I can get into why in just a second. Um, and then you have the other faction of like EA and rationalism. And I view Elon Musk is like the poster child of this faction. Although we are also sort of poster children of this faction, which is trying to create like a multi-planetary, diverse, technophilic empire that is like open to outside ideas. And this faction is really focused on education, pronatalism, interstellar travel, conquest, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, the, the, the two factions actually have very little in common other than that they're really looking at the facts and pretending to look long-term. I will never get over the fact that all these people who say they're long-term, if they've complained, they've complained a lot about my wife and I, they're like, you guys are trying to, on the EA forums, you guys are trying to take over the, the long-termist movement and make it something tied to genetics. And I was like, how can you be long-termist and not tied to genetics? You call yourself long-termist and all you care about is an AI apocalypse you think is going to happen within 10 years. Like that's the antithesis of long-termism. What we say is, yeah, an AI apocalypse is scary likely. I say like 30% likely. But if it doesn't happen, the the pronatalist apocalypse is definitely going to happen if we don't course correct as a society. Right, right. So <laughs> this is also an interesting internal debate. I I mean, we, we should actually, yeah, we should actually uh, go deeper into this, I think. Uh, I think this diversion is great. Um, so I think there are actually like two kinds of um, maybe aesthetics is not the right choice, but two time, two kinds of like metaphysics in EA, right? There's like, there is that kind of like monk-like quality, like singerism, right? Will McAskill is kind of like this as well, of basically like self-sacrifice. And, you know, there's like, you know, there's like, um, this kind of like empathy, but we do it more, or like trying to scale empathy, Versus trying to separate altruism from empathy entirely, right? Or trying to at least, like, minimize the points of contact, right? You can think of this as sort of, like, I don't want to say rationalism because you see the same divide in rationalism, actually, right? This kind of, like, um, how, how can we be rational but in order to, you know, be more empathetic to people versus how do we, you know, be rational, period, 
right? Um, you see this divide as well. Uh, I'm actually having I'm actually having another guest tomorrow to talk about it. Um, but you see exactly this kind of um, duality, I think, play itself out in a lot of these movements that are trying to like basically optimize for something. Right. I, I think Matt Iglesias had this tweet that was like, how do you, how do, is there, you know, like a version of the effective altruist movement that tr just tries to maximize the number of warm fuzzies, I feel. Right. And to an extent, right, you can say that part of the effective altruism movement does exactly that. Yeah. Okay. So I could go deeper here. Okay. Yeah, how, please do. Please how controversial do. do I want to get? Um, uh, maximally. Okay, so I would argue, and we argue this in the book, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, if you want to see it, great. Anyway, um, that the effective altruism movement, the, the faction that's like utility accountants, evolved out of the Jewish tradition to the extent that it could be seen as secular Judaism. Um, and I don't mean this in a negative context at all. Like, I, I largely love what they're doing. It's just not my cultural movement. And you see a lot of really interesting things that have a lot of parallels with, with the Jewish cultural tradition, like them putting posts up and being like, I will pay people to change my mind on this subject. Um, mm, right, right. Real interest with like intra-community conversation. Um, and that's a very positive thing. Um, and, and another thing that you see that came from the Jewish tradition, uh, was this trust in institutions, this idea that you should pool your money, put it in these big institutions, and then it, those institutions should dole out the money. Whereas the contrasting, um, uh, uh, more conservative side of the EA movement that I sort of described as like creating this interstellar cultural empire, um, uh, they likely evolved out of the Calvinist movement. Um, and so you see very different ways in how they approach things like charity. So this other faction doesn't believe in donating their money to like central organizations to dole out the money. They believe that once you have achieved a certain level of success, you should just start new organizations yourself. So right. yes, you see this in Elon Musk, right? Like he becomes successful in one area. He's like, okay, we need to like fight global warming. Okay. I'm starting a, a car company. Okay. We need to get into space. Okay. I'm starting a SpaceX company. Okay. Like progressivism has become a problem. Okay. I'm buying Twitter. You look at it us, like my wife and I, like, we run our own like thing that's trying to recreate the way secondary school works. And we write our own book series and we run our pronatalist organization. Um, and it, it, both movements, like I'm a firm believer that you need to live in a cultural ecosystem, that you are always better when you have multiple cultural strains that are fighting for broadly the same goal, working together and not against each other. Um, so yeah, I guess that would be my nuance on, on, on that. I might have gotten distracted there. No, it was great. It was great. These kinds of um, insights, I think, are very important. Right, Where you're jumping, it is this kind of mix of the aesthetic and the kind of rational, right? Where you're, where you're first noticing these similarities. I think this is the pattern that I'm, that I'm seeing, right? You kind of notice these similarities and you jump on it and then you find, you know, you try to, you try to make it more fine-tuned and accurate and making sure, you know, you're checking all your bases. But uh, yeah, I think this is great. The style yeah, is actually very good. That, like, this podcast. isn't coming from nowhere. If you look at the, the, the utility accountant version of the EA movement, a lot of these people are coming from secular Jewish backgrounds. And if you look at the 
um, uh, the the sort of more conservative side of the EA movement, a lot of these people are coming from secular Calvinist backgrounds. And I think that what people hugely underestimate is how much their ancestral cultural tradition carries on with them even after they become secular. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, do you have more to say on that, right? How, what kind of influence or like what kind of evidence do we have for that kind of influence this, this is a bit related to the kind of deep roots stuff as well, right? I recently had Garrett Jones on the yeah, show. Yeah, so, um, okay, so this is probably one of our most offensive points that we even make a point of not making explicitly in the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, is that I sort of think that when I talk about these memetic packages that increase people's fitness and sort of acted like evolving software on top of their firmware, that I think that that software and that firmware to some extent co-evolved to work really well together, and that that's why there isn't a true optimal, like, remember when I was talking about like the Protestant Calvinist divide, or the, pro, the pro, sorry, the Protestant uh, Catholic divide, um, where one group believes that truth is best, like, authenticated by expert consensus, and the other group believes that truth is always best certified by like individual exploration. Both of these have many positive and negative sides to them. You, you are best in a society that has people who are both, you know, culturally and to some extent genetically prone to see it both ways. Um, if you look at China, China's an example of a culture that was 100% expert consensus. And then it spun out into this zero COVID nonsense, which caused just right. like tons <laughs> of pain and death that didn't need to occur. Um, but in the U.S., if you look at the people who are part of like overboard on the Protestant mindset, um, you you see the same thing was like, QAnon and stuff like that, where they become so obsessed with finding out the truth for themselves or flat eartherism, they see conspiracy theories everywhere. Um, and, and, and they're unable to really determine what's true and what's not true. And they see everything that's held by an authority mindset as intrinsically against them. And so I think the U.S. is this, this, this perfect, and Israel to some extent as well, this perfect multicultural ecosystem uh, where you have different ways of seeing the world that are equally valid, different perspectives working together to create a more vibrant multicultural ecosystem. Right. Yeah. I don't think that's too, I don't think that's too controversial. Um, the well, kind it's of controversial to say that people to some extent are genetically aligned with their cultural ancestors. Wait, I think gene, gene culture cult evolution seems pretty robust. Right. Oh, the evidence is robust, but it, you wait till people say that I'm a, I don't know, a, ge, a genetic uh, determinist, which is funny because our whole book that we have is on, on cultural determinism, but whatever. Right, right. I mean, you know, a lot of this is... My friend, my friend Patrick Ryan actually has this wonderful, um, wonderful phrase, human weather, right? That's what I see it as. At the end of the day, you know, every or like most people are going to have just many issues in which that they're just not equipped to handle, right? Whether that's, mm -hmm. whether that's for emotional reasons, whether that's for cognitive reasons, right? Whether it's a mix of the two, I don't know. I'm not too, I'm not too concerned with when I say something's controversial, when I, when I, you know, want to take particular care around, to, around a subject, 
it's not because a particular group of people is bad at it. It's usually because there's a particular people who are good at it. And those people tend to disagree and tend to give, you know, solid evidence based reasons for why they disagree. Um, yeah. But yeah. I don't know. Like that, this, this seems particularly interesting given that you, you're much more prominent than me. It seems like you have much more of that. Basically you, you have much more of a reason to say, you know, like we have the evidence on on our side and not only that we have the kind of distribution power to just ignore these people right yeah well okay so i've got to go back to talk about why multicultural communities are interesting from the context of birth rate collapse so first let's sure. just talk about birth rate collapse really quickly people like the dominant social narrative does not understand how extreme this is um so as of like 2019 all of South America, Central America, and the Caribbean fell below replacement rate. This next year, India is falling below replacement rate. When I say replacement rate, I mean these cultures will begin to start shrinking because they are not producing as many kids as, as, as adults. Uh, China, by some metrics, is expected to be at half their population within 45 years. When I really started to care about this was when I was working in South Korea and I was a VC there. And I was like, okay, so I'm investing in things. And I went to talk to my boss and I was like, okay, so we're trying to project like where these companies are going to be in 50 years. But like, we all know that like Korea doesn't have an economy in 50 years. Right. And and he's like, yeah, I mean, like we know that, but we pretend that's not true. In the same way that like in the U S if you look at the way like loans are priced in, in um, coastal Florida versus central Florida, they're priced exactly the same on the 30 year home loans. Even though we know that these atolls aren't going to be there in 30 years, like even conservatives know that. Um, and so uh, in, in Korea, if you look at their current fertility rate, which is 0.7 or 0.8, that means for every 100 Koreans alive today, there will be either 4.3 oh – no, sorry, 4.8 or 6.3 great-grandchildren. You are looking at a well over 90% population collapse within the next century. And when you're dealing with societies like ours that have leveraged everything from our, our land to our houses to our companies to our, 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 our um, cities to our nation states, like – that's a full-on collapse scenario. Um, and this is what happened with Detroit. They started defaulting because their population decreased, uh, and, and, and that meant they weren't able to pay these loans, and they were at like about a 50% like of their money was going to loan repayments. And people are like, oh, well, other cities aren't that close. Uh, excuse me, like Manhattan is probably pretty close to a 50% uh, uh, money is going to leverage right now. Um, and people are like, no, only 7% of Manhattan's budget is going to leverage. And it's like, yeah, but what you aren't looking at the payroll and 30% of payroll is going to paying off pensions, which were accumulated a long time ago. And anybody who's worked with leverage or in VC or in finance and knows like leverage is great when something is growing because it means that like, if you take out like 50% leverage on something, okay. So, so suppose, um, I, uh, take out ten dollars of of okay. So there's a ten dollar. Anyway, I'm I'm not in the mindset to do the math here. But basically, you get a a a huge multiplier when something grows and is heavily leveraged, and a huge multiplier in the negative when something shrinks and is heavily leveraged. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. You've heavily leveraged everything, and our society has grown. When I put money on the stock market historically in Korea, in the U.S., wherever, right. Like it has grown because the number of productive units in the in the economic ecosystem has grown and the productivity that each of those units is producing has grown. The problem is 
is that the uh, number of productive units has been growing exponentially and the productivity per unit has been growing linearly. Uh, the productivity per worker in these these economic ecosystems has been growing linearly due to technology. A lot of people assume it's exponentially. It's not. So we are about to, within our lifetimes, likely see a point at which, on average, if you scattershot your money onto the stock market, it will shrink. Um, and that's really bad because as soon as that becomes true, you have a Detroit situation where, like, you get houses that are worth $1. As soon as everyone knows that, on average, a thing is shrinking, there's no reason to put money into it which leads to this sort of systems collapse of our wider system. I can't remember why I started on this tangent. Can you remind me? Right. We were talking about this as, I'm not sure if as a direct uh, corollary or or as a metaphor for population growth. Right. So I, I think the main, the base point holds what, what I'm interested in seeing, or like, let's reiterate the base point, right? Which is that the same design, the, the same kind of leverage design that you have with um, stock markets and with basically every investment um, and uh, that you have with uh, you, that you have with, or sorry, the, the same levered uh, design that you have with um, many investments is the same kind of design that you have with, uh, with population, right. Or with many institutions yeah, that they, have to they, do with population. They draw from each other. So with, yeah. With population, oh yes, the point I was going to get at is is what's really interesting here is you can so control the future of our species. Anyone who wants to opt in, and that's like the calling card, like the book that we have coming out is like that just came out is is basically saying like let's get together, everybody who wants to fix this, everybody who wants to create an intergenerationally durable culture for their family, and is like broadly open to people who think differently than you, and is like broadly technophilic, like let's come together. Let's create this sort of conservative cultural ecosystem in conservative in that it, it's concerned with intergenerational cultural fitness um, and, and, and work to, to steer the future of, of our species because it is so easy now compared to what it's ever been in human history. In human history, you had to like go out and conquer people. You know, it's funny. I was talking with some like political people in, in Japan and it's like, it's so funny that you, Japan, tried so many times to conquer Korea and China and, and you like went in and you killed people and you did all sorts of horrible things. And right now you could literally conquer them. If you could just motivate an above repopulation birth rate was in your culture. Um, because when <laughs> yeah. you're looking at like 90% population collapses in these other countries, like they're going to need to start importing immigrants soon. Um, and it's, it's so, weird that we sort of have this opportunity now but but so few people are are, are taking it to shape the future of our species and I'd, I'd really like to just be sort of a beacon for the families that are willing to undergo the burden of raising a lot of kids yeah what's interesting is i think um russ roberts has this book wild problems right where he talks about these these events in his life that trans transform how he thinks about value what he prefers right um his kind of utility function and he one of these is of course having children and i think what that implies right is that if you have essentially a society that is kind of like terrified of changing your own preferences of changing your own values that believes you know like anything that you believe is rational and you have to, you know, stop yourself from changing your mind. Mm -hmm. 
that's going to have a very detrimental effect on your ability or like your willingness to take on those wild problems, to take on these events and, and combine that with, um, with um, pregnancy being something that was kind of default on, right? Something that was assumed was going to happen unless really you took kind of extreme steps like becoming a nun to something that's in many areas of the world now, especially Western areas and many cultures in, in the West, you know, default off, right? It's assumed that you won't do that unless you uh, actively commit to doing so, right? That's just a recipe for, for in any case, right, empirically, at least in the short term, a rapid decline. Yeah. Um, oh God, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. I guess so. Okay, when, people, when people are going to go through puberty, um, you know, you're warned before you go through puberty. Everything you think about the world is going to change. And you don't really believe it before it happens, but like, like the things that make you happy, the things that give you motivation and fulfill you are going to change. And people are like, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't really believe it would change that much. And I didn't even really understand it was happening when it was happening. But, you know, looking back on it, it obviously did. And it did because my ancestors who underwent that change had sort of surviving offspring, right? Like they, they had sex with people and they ended up having surviving offspring. And yet, you know, it should be obvious that once you have a committed partner and kids, that you would need to undergo sort of this second puberty, the second change in what fulfills you. Um, and I, I think that we aren't fully prepared for just how much you change uh, in terms of what fulfills you after you have kids. And and I argue that this is actually where this desire, and you hear this from society, oh, we've, we've lost community. And I, 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 and I'm not getting this like community urge filled in me. And I hear this, even out of people living in like five person polycule houses, it's like, come on. Like you have a community. If it's not being filled, it's because you are misidentifying this emotional subset that you're not having filled being satiated. And I suspect what they're misidentifying is they notice that it's, it's not, it's that there aren't a number of people around, but I think it is primarily filled by little kids. And I have never heard anyone with more than three kids say that they don't, that they're feeling this lack of a community or anyone in a <laughs> traditional religious subset. Um, and I think that both of those things are what fulfill it and that we have moved away from that and we have stripped that away from ourselves and it has left this hole in our hearts. Right, right. So what's interesting is that you see a lot of kind of uh, proxy behavior, right? I think the most obvious one is just single uh, people having pets or, you know, childless people having pets. Yes. Right? That's, that's the most obvious example. So this is so cool. Yeah. So cultures evolved to try to prevent people from doing this. So this is where the idea of cat ladies came from. Like it, it right. specifically <laughs> evolved to denigrate anyone who used pets to masturbate their child rearing instinct. Um, and yet we have moved to a culture that no longer denigrates people that way. But what's really interesting is, so if you look at culturally and historically, this is why many cultures are anti-gay is that if you had a, a pro-gay culture and then like an anti-gay variant of that culture sort of splintered out of it, like a mutation splintered out of it, it would often compete the pro-gay culture because it would have a slightly higher birth rate than the pro-gay culture. And this is why it always ends up disappearing. But it was the same with things like bestiality, right? Like if people could satiate their need for sex through 
or 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 uh, sex it didn't leave to children. You know, this is why so many traditional cultures shame that stuff. Um, and so that from like a cultural evolution standpoint, we we should view people who use pets to masturbate their instinct to have kids. Um, you know, the same way we view people who like literally has sex with 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 pets. Um, but but we don't. We really divide these two categories of moral wrongness uh, now because we're sort of looking at an absolute morality. Um, and the absolute morality is really corrupted. I could go deeply into that. But like this idea that like suffering is bad more generally. Anyway, I don't want to go too deep there. But yes, continue. Yeah, I think this is in the end a central problem uh, if you're someone who's interested in raising birth rates, right? Which... I mean, I guess I would categorize myself there as well, although I haven't I haven't thought about it nearly as much as you have, right? But this is a central problem, right? That people have all of these outlets or that people just don't seem to prefer the real thing, right? Or at least they don't seem to be able to come to the point where they make that decision for themselves. Their, their, their revealed preferences are not that way, even if maybe polling data goes the other way, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, like, how do we solve this problem, right? Like, why... First of all, like, why are people increasingly not motivated to uh, to, uh, to have children? And, you know, how do you yeah, change so, that? Great question. So the intuition that everyone has when they hear that birth rates are, like, falling dramatically is, like, let's use this to kick my political football, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Many so let's contrast progressives and conservatives here. So progressives will say, oh, oh, great. Um, this means that it's because people don't have enough money to have kids and like we should ensure that people have more money and more state support and blah, 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 blah. Except like the data doesn't show this. You have more kids when you have less money. Now, yes, this is a U-shaped curve, but you don't get above repopulation rate again until a family has between 0.5 million and a million dollars in annual income. And that's just above repopulation rate barely. Like, so no, this isn't solved by giving people like more money or better or easier lives, right? So that's that's not the solution. It doesn't work on the progressive angle. And even if you look at countries that have like tried to make payouts, like Hungary spent five, well, like 4.7% Very progressive country. this last year trying to motivate <laughs> a higher fertility rate and it went up like 2%. That's nothing. Consider that China's fertility rate year over year this last rate declined by more than 13%. Um, so, okay, that's that's useless. And then conservatives are like, oh, well, we'll get up fertility rate by keeping out the immigrants and, and, and maintaining... Ethnic purity, and I don't mean mainstream conservatives. I'm talking about the extremists. I'm talking about the extremists on both sides, so people who don't hear reason. But anyway, um, it's like, you know, you're not the first person to think of this. They did this in Korea, one of the lowest birth rate countries in the world. Like, they have almost no immigration. In fact, if you look at immigration rates, if you look at cultural diversity within a country, the fertility rates are almost directly tied to the rate of diversity. So if you look at the only country that's expected to have a, a positive fertility rate in the developed world at the end of this century, you're looking at Israel, right? An incredibly diverse country. But if you also look at the countries in the developed world that have been more resistant to birth rate collapse, you're looking at the United States. You're looking at, at, at France. These are some of the most diverse countries within their ecosystems. Um, so this idea that you're, you're, you're better off keeping people out is just also wrong. And it should make sense that a culture that sharpens itself against others and that sees itself in contrast to others is going to have a clearer vision of what it is. Yeah, so we went over a bunch of 
solutions that aren't, right? Or a bunch of possible solutions that won't actually work. What is the solution that will work? Okay, so first let's talk about the solutions that like super work by the statistics. If you make a country poorer, birth rate goes up. So sabotage the economy. <laughs> Prevent development. That's, that's great. Um, no, actually, this is like a real solution. This is actually kind of a problem. Because right now, when I talk to progressives, right, they're like, we'll fix birth rate with immigration. And it's like, immigration from where? Latin America is below repopulation rate right now. And they're like, well, we'll take them from Africa. It's like, okay, so first of all, let's be clear about what you're really arguing for here. We have like a problem. Like we can't pay into our social security system and stuff like that. So you want to import black people from Africa to support non-working white people? That's your not <laughs> fucking racist yeah. solution. But worse than that, the only way that solution stays viable is if you sabotage the economic development of African countries. So it's like bad on so many instances here. So okay, so one like uh, uh, right, right. Have you ever have you ever heard? Um, I think Spandrel's idea of the IQ shredder, right? The idea is you know like all the smart people are drawn into this area where or like his example was like Singapore, right? All all the high IQ people are drawn into this area where there's very low reproduction, right? And you know an increasing you know increasing fra- fraction of. Uh, of a country or of of the world, right? In the case of U.S. immigration, of the world's um, most brilliant people are drawn into this area and basically, you know, left to die, right? Oh yeah, uh, no, no. And I, I bitch I, with EA movement. I talk to these people and I'm like, do you not understand? You're spearfishing these local communities. You are you're spearfishing the biggest fish. When you do that, you hurt those communities right. permanently. If if I go and I'm hunting elephants. And I hunt the elephants with the biggest tusks and that are the least afraid of people. Not within a long period of time, elephants will start becoming more aggressive towards people and, and they will have smaller tusks. We all know this and yet we pretend like it doesn't apply to humans. It obviously applies to humans anyway. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of the blank slateism, we, we can, we can return to that subject, but okay, I think wait, you really want to on, get back, to back, the back. solutions. Okay, another that way work. you can increase yeah, birth yeah. rates. Sorry. A great way to increase birth rates. And a, and a number of countries have done this. Really fantastic. Uh, just prevent women from being allowed to get schooling and um, force them to stay inside. Really, any systemic law you you do, you do put into place that discriminates against women increases birth rates. And I need to be clear because people are idiots. I'm saying this sarcastically. It obviously right, works. Right. It's a bad solution. I don't know. I could probably book some people on the podcast who would say it. No, yeah, 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 whatever. But, okay, I, I, okay, I, I work okay. with my wife very closely. We are the single, we are a single unit. It's traditional to our cultural background. I think that that is the way we we should exist in the world. Um, uh, but that's because of my culture. You know, if you're from a different culture, right. I, I guess treat genders differently than I do. But, so the question is, okay, so with the two obvious statistical solutions not working, what is the real solution? And we have seen some things work. I think it was Armenia where the patriarch was like, okay, I will adopt every new kid. And that actually dramatically increased birth rate. Cultural solutions are the solutions you need to work on. So what we do is because we want to create this like diverse cultural ecosystem in the future, we sort of view society right now as like an agar plate with like many different bacteria growing on it that was dusted with antibacterials. 
And we are trying to find like single cells from like as many different colonies as possible and then put them in the most optimal conditions to be resistant to antibacterials in the future. Because these single cells were, for whatever reason, had mutations that made them resistant to antibacterials. And this is why we work on like our educational institute was like the Collins Institute and stuff like that is, is we are trying to create an educational system that both dramatically outcompetes the existing educational system, but also doesn't try to erase traditional cultures because we are trying to capture and enable whatever mutations exist in society today, cultural mimetic mutations that allow these iterations of traditional cultures to be resistant to the virus. Right. So in other words, it has to be bottom up. It, it can't it be, be like, bottom you know, up. I cannot convert yeah. people. If I convert people, I, it's antithetical probably to my cultural framing as well. Like I'm from the Calvinist cultural framing. I believe in an elect and an unelect, like, Converting people is wrong. It's not the way you solve this. Right. That, that's really interesting because in a way, right, in, in a way, right, like what we call like the virus or wokeism, right, it's sort of optimized for that sort of conversion, right, for, for basically spread on the lateral instead of intergenerational level. Mm-hmm. But all of the main solutions to kind of solve the intergenerational problem have to compete with it, right? It has to do that same kind of lateral, you know, convincing. It has yeah. to do that same kind of bottom-up movements. So I guess, like, how how does that how does that actually happen, right? Like, what is the marginal what is the marginal you know increase in birth rate going to come from in the kind of bottom-up view? So, I mean, I think if you look at sort of the debt thing I was talking about, if you look at the market collapsing I was talking about, when you have a market economy that is on average shrinking every year, and, and keep in mind, AI could be a literal deus ex machina here, could fix everything. It could clone humans. It could, um, it could fix everything, right? But in like the 50% probability, it doesn't. Like this other scenario is an inevitability. Um... And that being the case, what you're trying to do is every time culture has collapsed, there's been some, when I say culture, I don't mean culture more broadly. I mean like this progressive culture that's open to outside ideas and doesn't, you know, murder gay people, for example. Like every time this has collapsed in society, there's been some enclave that like kept science and that kept everything else. Um, And, and that we are trying to recruit for that enclave well, also learning the lessons from this cycle so that the next time we have a renaissance, it can last forever. That we don't need to live in this collapse and bust cycle anymore. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is I'm not actually looking to save society. I'm looking to save – we're looking at a great extinction event, a great cultural extinction event. And I'm looking to save the highest diversity of cultures and the highest diversity of perspectives possible – so that the next time we restart things, we have captured the highest amount of sort of evolved in institutional knowledge. Yeah, this is really interesting because, yeah, this has been something I've been pushing other people on, this kind of defensive view of it, that you're going to get, you know, you're going to get sort of economic transformations at the very least, if not, you know, these kind of like population-wide ones. 
And when that happens, you know, the primary, the primary question is not, you know, how sharp your sword is. It's going to be, you know, how locked your door is, right? Yes. Uh, to put it as a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this is great. This is great. So yeah. W- where where does the priority of uh of diversity not in the you know like the propaganda sense but in the literal sense right where does that what motivates that as the as the thing to be protected if we looked at our society right now and i was to go even to my own childhood and i was to say what cultures have value what are going to solve like systemic issues in the future of humanity I'd definitely be like, oh, not those old, not the, not the Amish, not the, you know, the, 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 the older traditions, right? The more tradition. And yet today, if we're looking at birth rates, that's where I'm drawing a lot of my like ideas from because they seem to be the most resistant to collapse. And even cultures that we previously would have thought would be resistant to collapse, like the Mormons, like it looks like they're below repopulation right now, or, or they will be within the next few years. I mean, that's not the canary in the coal mine dying. That's when the miner's skin is bubbling off. Like, this is a major issue when even they can't stay above repopulation rate. So I think you can't know what cultures and what viewpoints are going to be of utility in the future. But even if you look at high productivity populations by the standards of our current society, I mean, you're looking at groups like the Jayans and the Parsi, and like they will almost certainly be extinct by like the end of this century if we don't find a way to preserve some aspect of their culture. Right. And they're both very interesting from a cultural evolutionary perspective as they're like the coelacanths of cultural evolution. Two of the oldest deviations from like the evolutionary line that led to all other cultures. And therefore they likely have the most unique and meaningful cultural mutations. And so what we're trying to build is, well, okay, we get way too deep into this, but something called the index, which is supposed to allow for like cultural evolutionary horizontal gene transfer between cultural units. Anyway. Yeah. There, there is no, my friend, this is the, from the new world podcast. There's no getting too deep into it. Oh no. <laughs> Okay, the index. Okay, so the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion. It's really where we promote and, and, and establish this idea of the index. And the index is saying, let's take these conservative cultures that are interested in sort of moving forwards and that are open to outside cultures and create this sort of intracultural alliance um, where the kids don't grow up feeling weird because they're in a culture with like weird, unique holidays and everything like that, like we do for our family. And, and, and all you're really committing to when you join is two things. One, you record your cultural traditions in the index. That's why it's called the index. And then two, when your kids get married, one, like they'll be in, uh, we'll have dating markets that are like intercultural within the index so that you can, um, or intercultural, uh, so that you're, you're, you know, you can fix some of these larger, like broken dating market things and stuff like that. Um, and that when your kids get married, they get the choice, you know, you, you can pressure them otherwise, but they at least get the choice. Like, you're not going to kill them, like no blood feuds here, um, to choose to create a new culture, what we call like a house within the larger index system, or to, um, you know, move to the culture of the person they're marrying. 
And so the idea here is that you have, and, and when they create a new culture, like if your kids get married and they create a new culture, they have the ability to reference the index, which monitors mm. both the traditional cultures of all of the constituent um, uh, traditional entities which have joined the index, but also the outcomes of those cultures. You know, uh, how have the kids done educationally? Mm. How have the kids done economically? How many, what, what's the cultural fidelity between generations? Um, and so that they can pick and choose and sort of allow for this lateral or horizontal gene transfer, if you're talking like cultural is like genetic units um, between cultures, but it also allows for better uh, cross-cultural marriages because right now when you have cross-cultural marriages, like people from two different religions who marry, they'll either try to raise their kids within each religion. And it's like, obviously that's not going to pass on to the next generations. So that's not like a durable cultural practice um, or uh, they'll have one of the parents' uh, cultural traditions like completely trump the other one. But the idea is, or, or like sublimate it, can you take the best parts of both cultural tradition and find a way to synthesize them into a unique cultural unit where the kids will grow up feeling like this is a normal thing? And that's what we're trying to create. Right. So, so one challenge to that, is that you're trying to apply rational processes to like pre-rational systems, right? So, so like when I inherit a culture, right? You know, hopefully when I pass down my culture in the future, right, to my children, that's not happening because I'm kind of like rationally instructing them what to do, right? It's kind of like force. It's kind of like habitual, right? It's habitual. It's growing up. It's those kind of uh, it's to some degree those kind of aesthetics, right? That you that you pass on. I'm sure you have this experience as well. And you know, to kind of pick and choose, like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to pass on this part. I'm not going going to pass on uh, on like this other part, right? To, to me, that sounds you know quite difficult, maybe impossible, right? So how how do you resolve that problem? People do this all the time, deciding whether their kids are going to grow up with Hanukkah or Christmas or both. Um, and I think hmm. when you more culturally uh, sort of bring to the surface, like what is truth for your culture? When you, this is what we try to do with our book, when you uh, sort of highlight the way cultures are actually different, you can better understand what your cultural proclivities are and better communicate those to your kids. And, and I do think that it is something you can choose. I mean, people could just disagree. They could say, no, 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 you really can't choose or you won't know what you're 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 passing on to them, uh, you know, sort of subconsciously, and and maybe that's true. But I do think that there are things you can pass on to them consciously, and you can intentionally design cultural traditions. And yeah, yeah, I hmm, that's a good point when it comes to you know Hanukkah or Christmas. That that is a kind of obvious example of you um, having the choice to do that. Um, I mean, I guess the kind of conservative or the kind of like Chestertonian critique, right, is that when you try to rationally blend these things together, you never know, you know, it's kind of impossible to predict what you're going to get, that that these things are more like integrated holes instead of, you know, component parts. Right? Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, one of the things that my wife and I are known for is we've had sort of the first public Gattaca baby, you know, we use mm, polygenic yeah. risk scores to sort of determine genetic correlates to specific outcomes, some of them mental. And we chose between them when we were choosing, you know, for our kids. 
This is a cultural tradition of our family, but it's a, and people say the same thing about the genetics. You know, they say, well, you can't be sure what is, you know, are you actually getting this? I mean, the science is new. And I'm like, yes, you're right. The science is new. We're not perfect. But I think that I can do better than, than somebody who's not using this at determining whether my kids are going to have, you know, systemic depression or whether they're going to get cancer. Um, and I think that we are the first generation doing this as the cultural basis, but if the index survives for many generations, I think that we will get better and better at determining what actually causes what. Right. Yeah. I, I guess at the end of the day, it is a kind of, you know, it is a kind of scaling issue, right? I think that's, that's definitely true that many of the concerns, I mean, I've talked to Steve Shu on this, I know a mutual friend mm-hmm. uh, yeah. on, uh, on kind of how on the, like the progression of these gene wide association scores and the polygenic prediction scores. Right. Um, yeah. I, I can definitely see a world where, you know, that kind of data is accumulated over time in terms of whether I would be kind of comfortable doing that with my culture in the present, right, I guess this is what it boils down to, right? I, I, I would probably for myself would not be comfortable with doing that in the present. But in terms of like, you know, if people are, if, if people have a kind of adventurous spirit and if this is, you know, a system that is improving itself, then I see, I guess I see no problem with that. Yeah, so, so something that, something else that really stood out to me that I didn't actually understand the degree to which this was a kind of like defensive uh, this was a kind of defensive mission to me. That that to me is something that's really great. Is um, is also that you do this in a way. This is also tying into my question about fashion earlier, right? You 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 present this in a way that is sort of uh, cosmo- cosmopolitan or is sort of uh, really online, right? So you, the best way I think to, of talking about this is comparing it to the kind of like quote unquote trad aesthetic. Right, where there are a lot of people who are like, we must return, you know, Ted Kaczynski was right, you know, industrial society and its consequences. Um, maybe, maybe in relation to some of those, uh, some of those uh, solutions that would not work or, or some of the solutions that would work at great cost that you were talking about, uh, earlier, but you kind of have this way of presenting pronatalism as a sort of very, um, and I don't mean this kind of superficially, I mean this like genuinely in a very fashionable way, right? So what are the kind of insights in doing that and how does it play into the kind of broader yeah. broader ideal, the broader mission? Let's talk about tradism. I, I like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're fun. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about humanity being more than what we think of us as. You know, we think of us as the biology, which had a genetic component, and then the firmware, which is like our genetic proclivities towards certain ideas or political philosophies or ways of seeing the world. But then on top of all that, there was this object oriented software, which was our culture. Um, and uh, if, if you look at a lot of the trad philosophy, so, so if you look at progressive society or like mainstream society, it ripped out like a third of humanity. And it was like, Oh, we'll, we'll do fine without this. And now it's learning, you know, uh, you know, every, almost every traditional culture has some like arbitrary self-denial ritual, uh, whether it's Passover or Lent or Ramadan. Um, and, and now it's learning, like you, you talk within progressive circles and they're all like, oh yeah, I'm fasting now. You know, it's my new thing. 
Um, and, and so they're learning from science that like these cultures evolved these mechanisms for a reason. Um, and I think when you look at tradism, uh, there's this understanding and this, this almost truism that the older way we did things, like especially dating markets, it worked better in many ways. However, that's not what we are attempting to do. We appear trad because we're sort of like neo-trad, right? Like we, um, if, if you look at our house right now, we live in this 1700s farmhouse. We have everything set up with, you know, Google and Alexa and all that and, and automatically turning off and on lights and heating systems. Um, and that's sort of the way we view our approach to, 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 to culture, which is you don't need to carbon copy the traditional way of doing things. You need to look at the traditional way of doing things. You need to look at the modern way of doing things and understand what aspects of the modern system aren't working. And, and, and the traditional system is one color palette that you can use to fix it, but it's not the only one. Um, however, it's a uniquely robust one um, that is probably going to be better than anything you come up with off the top of your head. So be absolutely certain when you do come up with something off the top of your head that it's not just what you want in the moment. It actually has some like a logic behind it at a systemic level. Right. So basically being able to project that into the future, having yeah. it, yeah, having it be something. Right. I, I guess. I think at the end, end of the day, the answer to a lot of these questions is that, you know, you just have to try, right? That like, it, it's the best out of all of the alternatives. But one of the things that I was going to raise is like, you know, there are a lot of fables warning against this. This is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of conservative critique of this method, right? The conservative critique of, you know, like the kind of Jordan Peterson evolved kind of like religion as an evolved tool, right? That you know, when you, when you try to, when you try to rationally change these things, you know, you'll very quickly run up against your limits and you might even do more harm than good. But I guess, I, I guess like, I mean, I, I have the the response to that as well, right? I'm not sure if you would give something different. I think we've been kind of, this has definitely been a subtext of, of our conversation is that um, that's doing nothing is not really a choice right now, right? Doing nothing, you know, there, there are processes that are already in motion, that will, on the generational scale, right, be very disastrous if we do nothing. So it's not like it's it's not like we have that choice at all. I I, I literally couldn't agree with you more. When even the Mormons are below below repopulation right now, doing nothing isn't a choice. You know, right. it, the, even the most conservative religious traditions don't seem to be able to motivate people to have kids anymore. Um, and 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 that being the case. You know, people could look at us and say, you guys might fail. And it's like, okay, yeah, I've done a lot of crazy stuff in my life that might fail. And a lot of times it turned out to work. A lot of times it turned out to fail. And at an intergenerational level, we could fail. However, I, I think the evidence is in our favor. I think the logic is in our favor. And I think that we will become the the multi-planetary empire that humanity was 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 destined to become. Right. Hmm. 
I don't know. When I think of when I think of long term, you know, Sam Oviria has this analogy when he talks about the energy transition, right? It's like it's like you're crossing a stream and you're leaping from one rock to another, and if you slip just one time, right, you can be washed away and have all your progress, really have all your progress removed, right? Or or worse, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of some kind of existential risk scenarios. Well, so so what's the alternative here, right? Like progressive That's culture, yeah. I describe progressive culture right now is if you're going, so you can receive a lethal, lethal dose of radiation and you won't know it right away, but all mm, of yes. your DNA has been scrambled and your cells can no longer divide and you're basically a dead person walking. That's right. progressive culture right now in terms of its birth rate. It's dead already. Um, You have a few conservative cultures that I think we can form strong alliances with because I think we're, you know, well on the side of them. Um, but maybe not. And, and, and people can say, well, why would you try this? What other alternative do I have? I mean, am am I supposed to just convert to some older traditional thing that I don't think has logic behind it? That doesn't work for me either. I, I, I still want to be logical and I want my kids to engage with the world as it really exists. So I, I could fail. But the worst case scenario is if I try this, then my kids and anyone who culturally aligns with our family just ends up disappearing because we didn't have enough kids and we didn't pass our culture on to our own kids. But if I succeed, then I plant the seeds of a diverse, multicultural, technophilic human empire that's open to outside ideas. The the, the reward trade-off just seems so obvious to me here. Right. That's, yeah, yeah. This is also something that I remark pretty often, right? Is that um, when when you catastrophize about the things around you, you need to remember that your life is the same as it was, more or less the same as it was yesterday. Yeah. Right. This, this This is something that I've said at the end of a lot of conversations is that like, the big moment where you go from pessimism to optimism, right? Where you go from the black pill to the white pill is, you know, you're, you're in this conversation. Maybe you're hearing this from the first time, maybe you podcast listener, maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you're thinking, man, this is a deep, deep hole we've dug ourselves in. So you, you hear that maybe that changes the way you reflect on the world. But in fact, you know, like the material conditions of your life, the, the, the position you are in the universe, right? You, you're in, in the universe has not changed one bit. You've just kind of noticed a very big problem. And if you resolve that problem, right, on the other side of that, right, is look at how much better things could become. Look at, look at your life yesterday. You know, you, you might have been like, maybe you weren't too happy, but you're at least feeling okay. But it could be significantly better if we just start doing, you know, the obvious things. That to me is like, that to me is the attitude to have. And, I, and I'm very glad that I think you have that attitude as well. Yeah, but I also think there's an optimism to this worldview. You know, people look at us and they're like, wow, you're really pessimistic about the future of our species. And I'm like, it, to an extent... But we could also shape the future of humanity. The people who choose to take on this burden of having kids. You know, my family has eight kids. And those kids have eight kids. And we we create this intergenerational, uh, durable culture that motivates this. 
for just 11 generations, we'll have more descendants than there are people who live on earth today. Like, and, and that's a failure scenario to us because that would be a homogenous culture. But the reality is, is that, that you have a chance to peacefully conquer or, 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 or play a huge role in the future of our species today just by putting in the effort in a way that no human has really had before. And that's just such a blessing. And to me, it's such an optimistic thing. Right. I mean, yeah, this, this is a kind of weird motivation, right? Like this kind of like conquering into the future thing it seems very different from how people are, are like typically motivated to conquer things, right? You know, whether it's tribalism, whether it's, you know, the, those kind of like warlike dispositions, whether it's the kind of like, it, it's a, maybe a bit closer to kind of entrepreneurial, right? But even that is like a very rapid, it, it's like overwhelming uh, speed and technology and novelty, mm-hmm. right? There, there, there really is not a thing that's you know like there, there really is not a motivating story that is like you know hunker down and persist for generations. I don't really see that much at all. So it's interesting. So when we you remember, I talked about the index, and you have different cultural units fighting, not fighting, but like learning from each other. Um, the the cultural unit we've built for our family the way we are raising our kids is what we call a um a secular theology um and it's a secular form of calvinism but something because it's my family background and i do believe that you should try to adopt your your background to a secular mindset and what it is is a belief in the future police and so i tell my kids you know i say you know a million years from now 10 million years from now if our descendants are still alive do you think they'd be closer to the way you conceptualize a human today or closer to the way you conceptualize a God? And I think that any rational person would say, ah, they'll be closer to the way I conceptualize a God. And I, I feel my kids will say this as well. So to say, who, who's to say, I mean, we don't fully understand the way time or physics works yet. Who's to say they can't, see you today who's to say they can't influence you today who's to say they're not watching over you who's to say i mean we know from the um wow god the something split experiment uh that that photons can sort of exist as probability waves who's to say that multiple futures can't exist as probability waves in some way and sort of be attempting to manifest themselves and that these future gods are attempting to manifest themselves through their impact on, on, on you, the elect. And you're the elect because you have the chance to impact the future. Um, and, and so this motivates, and we do this within holidays within our families and stuff like that, this, this mindset of genuine long-termism and not this sort of faux AI apocalypticism long-termism. Yeah, now you're really getting to what we owe the future. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Man, okay, I did. Okay, quick side note. Should I explain the joke to my audience? Sorry? I'm going to drop a truth bomb here. The people need to hear, okay? Okay. The Judeo-Christian cultural tradition, cultivars that come out of the Judeo-Christian culture, 
have always had an obsession with apocalypticism. Every decade, there has been some major apocalypticist movement within the Judeo-Christian tradition, especially in the U.S. Um, and, and you just need to go back and look at like the religious history of the U.S. It is, it is not like a unique thing. Every decade, there was some new apocalypse that was going to happen. And then we became a more secular culture, and we started believing in secular apocalypses, whether it's a black hole swallowing everything because of like photon accelerators or like Y2K. Um, if you look around the world today and you look at the people who are like genuinely afraid that AI is going to kill us all, almost all of them are living in cultures that are predominantly ancestrally Judeo-Christian. You do not see this in India. You do not see this in China. You do not see this in Japan. You do not see this in Korea. And so that, to me, I look at AI apocalypticism, and logically it makes sense to me. AI is going to kill us all. But learn from your ancestors. They have systemically made the same mistake every generation. When no one else seems to be that concerned about this, maybe you're over-indexing something. Right. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, I mean, I mean, just from a technical perspective, maybe this is not the episode to get into this, but from a tactical perspective, I don't see the, I don't see the short AI timelines at all. Right. Like, I, I do not, you know, I think like a bet, a pre-registered bet that I had is like, it'll take 10 times more, it'll take an order of magnitude more time to go from the, this was made in 2018. So to go from uh, 2018 levels of uh, artificial intelligence to like the the median human, right. To, to go then to go from the median human to, uh, to um, the top, like 0.1% of humans. So like it will take it will take ten times longer to make that second leap, the leap from average to to like really really exceptional, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's just like a basic function of like training data economics or like just just how you know how scaling laws work for artificial intelligence. Like I, I this <laughs> not to make this too much of a Twitter discussion, right? But I also had I think like one of my favorite memes that I myself have made on Twitter which is like, you know, like the expanding brain meme, right? The first layer is like constants. Second layer, linear growth. Third layer, exponential growth. Fourth layer, S-curves. And people, you know, I think like artificial intelligence, both like the, the optimistic, both like the AI risk people and like the artificial intelligence companies have so much vested interest in pretending that their S-curve is just going to go off into infinity. That I just think, you know, I think that they're wildly overestimating it. The other trick I want to call out as well, now that we're on, you know, calling out calling out um, exponential curves that are actually S-curves, is, you know, anyone who has been observing the AI risks debate should be able to go back and track the intellectual development from this might be a 0.1% chance but because it will be so devastating, we should worry about it anyway, to we literally think this is a 30% chance. And like to think that those two things are not, you know, like psychologically related is, uh, I think, a grave error. So I'd like to add two things here. You, yes, your more family, dunking on the, you're more not from the a Judeo-Christian risk. background, right? Sorry? Your, your, your family isn't from a Judeo-Christian background. Uh, no. 
This is what a sane, intelligent person who's not from a Judeo-Christian background thinks about AI apocalypticism. I, <laughs> I personally am not able to see this perspective, but I know from history that I am biased. And and it's important to look at that history and understand that this is why multicultural ecosystems have value. And yeah, I, I just, I love what you're saying there because I think it, it's so so true and not something I would be able to think in absence of someone like you. Right. That, actually, I'm, I'm not sure if that's completely the case because I know like this is not too far from like the exact predictions, you know, may vary, but a lot of machine learning researchers are not, are not AI risk people, right? They have fairly long timelines as well. Yeah. Like a lot of the people who are, you know, practically involved with trying to scale machine learning models, they, they, a lot of them are like, you know, this is a lot harder than you guys think, right? Um, yeah, I, I do think, I don't know, I do think that there's definitely a kind of influence there, right? I think, like, one direction it's definitely true, where, like, mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian um, uh, heritage or culture, right, uh, drift pushes people a lot in the direction of thinking about eschatology. I'm not sure if the other direction is completely true, where I do think there are a lot of skeptics who I would at least assume are Judeo-Christian, or even if they're not, you know, like explicitly Jewish or explicit or like practicing Jewish or practicing Christian, you know, from the same kind of culture, right? There, there are a lot of, you know, like Americans, um, Brits, so on. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just talking about what the general like perspective is within each culture. You know, right, there, there's right. people in yeah. China and India and Korea and Japan who think that the world's going to end because of AI. They're just not the majority. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so that actually is, is something that's really interesting, right? Like. Or like going back to the original point, why is there such a focus on eschatology in kind of Judeo-Christian cultures? Yes, let's talk about, okay, so this is really interesting. So let's talk about eschatology. Let's talk about um, apocalypticism and why it performs so well within mimetic units. And I, I, I genuinely have trouble modeling other mimetic units. So I'll just talk about like why it performs well within the mimetic units that like are within my larger brain space. All right. Like, so like, why does it dominate EAism, for example? Um, so suppose you're an existing leader of the EA movement, right? And there are two things. Hypothetically. (laughs) Sorry, go on. Yeah, there's two things you could think were major issues, right? You could think that either the world will end in, like, 20 years due to AI apocalypticism, or you could think that there's this, like, longer, ongoing, like, pronatalist problem, right? Um, if you adapt the the world will end in 20 years, you need to make no changes to your lifestyle. You know, you, you get to continue to be who you are. You get to put 100% of the money that you're raising towards promoting yourself and promoting this idea or this view. Um, and uh, you you get to be functionally hedonist because like whatever you're doing for pleasure yourself is really largely irrelevant because you're doing it, you know, oh, whatever. I'm just doing it to be more efficient in the short term so that I can spread this message better. But suppose these people had to become like pronatalists, right? Like actually think long term. Having lots of kids is a huge personal sacrifice and it requires a lot of work and it requires them to change the path that they're on in life. And so of course they're going to be heavily biased towards this apocalyptic mindset. Um, But in addition to that, 
Uh, anyway, sorry, lost my train of thought there. I'm not good at maintaining. I have very low whatever K score that is called, where you can hold a lot of ideas in your head at once. Uh, yeah, but that's that is interesting. I think like I don't know. On, on one hand, there are sort of true believers who are now working in like AI alignment organizations that are paying, you know, like one quarter of if they were working at like normal AI orgs, right? Which is still maybe not terrible, right? But they've but been converted definitely... within their cultural unit. The leaders of their their cultural unit have told them this is important. The question is, is right, why do the leaders right. believe what they believe, not what the minions? Right. I don't know. I guess it goes to who you consider a leader, right? Because there are people who have also like founded these organizations who clearly have the kind of technical talent to be making a lot more money, mm. right? Like, are, are those people considered leaders? Or are we just talking about, you know, kind of like the, the influencers, right? Like, the... Well, Yeah, I mean, the influencers define what you are culturally rewarded for believing or not believing. I mean, right. pronatalism is such like an obvious issue from the statistics. If you look at the statistics, it's the most obvious like civilization destroying thing that we're facing because unlike AI apocalypticism, which like even like the aggressive people are like a 30% chance. Anyone who's looked at the statistics on pronatalism is like, we're talking about a 99% chance of civilizational destruction here. Um, And yet people aren't talking about it. There's gotta be a reason for that. Yeah. that, That is interesting. Maybe maybe I'm getting like a bad sample of this because yeah it actually it actually does go to kind of like the cultural traditions like a lot of people in China are talking about it right which is interesting because their it's it's not like their their policies have been any better right some no. of their policies have been actively bad right and but and they haven't been of, able to motivate yeah. birth rates and it's very fascinating yeah. so this is the thing like coming from Korea to the U S. I really felt like there's this old Stargate SG-1 episode that I love. The Ash... Ash, Ash uh, did you ever watch Stargate SG-1? Uh, no. I, okay. I don't even know what it is. Well, there was one alien species in it, which to me was always the scariest, which killed the people they conquered by uh, sterilizing them or, or lowering their birth rates, not even fully sterilizing them. And they ended up being like the most imposing enemy they'd ever faced. And they only ended up preventing them from winning by sending a message back in time to never engage with them. Um, and when I look at Korea and when I look at China now, SG-1 was right. Like, you, people do not, like, they can culturally recognize, like, China can culturally recognize, like, oh my gosh, a 13% year-over-year decline in fertility when we've already implemented the three-child policy, when we've already implemented, like, different taxation policy. Like, this should be a huge wake-up call, and yet it's not. It's because, like, we are not capable of freaking out about birth rates in the way that we should. Hmm. And no one is, and no one has. Uh, In fact, the only population that seems to have any sort of like sane like we're talking about like ethnic cultural traditions that seem to be able to respond to this well it's the jewish one um in developing countries there's the only one that seems to be able to maintain an above repopulation rate birth rate um and even there you know there's a lot of caveats yeah hmm right in that in that series why were they why were they such a formidable foe like the lowering birth ma- rates, aliens. Because people didn't fight against them for it. 
They came, they right. offered us technology, they offered us vaccines. Actually, it was vaccines. So SG-1, if you're not familiar with it, it's the longest running continuous sci-fi series in human history, above even Doctor Who, because I wasn't continuous running. Um, and yeah, so they offered us vaccines, and the vaccines lowered birth rates. Which oh, is, is that where is that where the theory comes from? Oh, oh, oh! I touched <laughs> on a political issue. I do not. I want to be clear. I do not think vaccines are what is lowering birth rates. However, the endocrine disruptors in many products that we use daily, like plastics, do seem to be lowering birth rates pretty dramatically. Really? Okay, this is something, or like, I, I'm not surprised as in I believe the opposite, but I just have not, you know, I don't know a lot about this. I know some people talk about it. Uh, what's the relationship between those things? I guess I don't care because we, so, okay, my cultural unit freezes lots of embryos and then uses polygenic risk scores to ensure that we can have, um, you know, the optimal children, Right. Um, and so we don't need to worry about endocrine disruptors in the way that other cultural units do, because even if those endocrine disruptors, you know, turn our kids gay or trans, like we don't shame kids for being gay or trans. We just say, just make sure you have a lot of kids yourself. Um, and so like we as a cultural unit, I guess, aren't as afraid of them as other cultural units. But from what I see in the research, it appears that places that don't use these sorts of plastics and materials as much as other places have much lower rates of, 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 of a drop in sperm rate, much lower rates of LGBT populations and stuff like that. And I guess it depends on if you see them as an intrinsic bad, which our culture doesn't. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know. That kind of, it's very interesting, right? Because the kind of like roots, the, the roots uh, answer is, or like the root political question here is like, should the EPA be given more powers or fewer powers? And this is like a traditionally left-wing thing. The EPA stops this. What the government needs to do is it needs to fund a body, not the EPA, right, that doesn't ban or allow things, but that just tries to objectively judge the effects of things and then label products that way. Yeah, so... I mean, the thing, I actually talk about this briefly with Richard Bruns, right? The, the problem with this is that there, there's a kind of reaction that happens. There, there's a sort of like collective action problem where government agencies spend trust. And when they spend trust that aggressively, right, people end up thinking like the, the mindset is like, oh, if they didn't ban this, then they must be exaggerating its harms. Mm-hmm. Um which part of which is kind of talking about like or which goes back to some of the broader things we talked about earlier right with like things taking over institutions this kind of like devoid of trust or like this kind of like you know very very public almost ritualistic destroying of trust um yeah many many serious consequences from that not sure not sure where to go from there well so i think you're misunderstanding what's happening it's not a destroying of trust what they're doing is witch hunts so not in the way that we think of witch hunts in our society today what they're doing when an organization is infected at a certain level what it will do is it will say something that's obviously not true, but is against the virus's agenda, and then sort of search for anyone who stands up to that thing and delete them from its network. 
we saw this was the early school closures. Uh, like the person who was in line to become CEO of, I forget what organization, some jean company. I want to say Levi's maybe. She was like, don't you understand that this, these school closures are disproportionately hurting, you know, people of color. They're disproportionately hurting BIPOC people. They're disproportionately hurting the less wealthy people. Um, and she ended up losing that position because of this. And now everybody knows this is true. Everybody knows that they weren't necessary in the way they're necessary. If you look like across society, you see that school closures were actually tied to the power of the teachers union in the local region and not like the amount of COVID in the local region. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't care to apologize because that was never the goal. The goal was to find out anyone who was immune and ensure that they were removed from the network. Right, right. This is the kind of, you know, bio-Leninism. Um, yeah, I'll be, talking, I'll be talking with Rocco about this tomorrow as well. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I think that what's particularly interesting about this kind of behavior, right, is, is that, like, in my, in my intuitive sense is that it should prompt, like, an equal and opposite reaction, right? But it's kind of clear that it doesn't, right? Empirically, it just doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. It's so, so like, why is that? Like, like, why is it that people are not getting together and, you know, like, stigmatizing the people who are, or who are saying these insane things, right? Like, why is there no, like, counterpillary? What evolutionarily, the cultural or the genetic level, would cause them to do that? There's just nothing. What do you mean? Like, someone is saying, like, a clearly dumb thing. You know, I'm gonna think, you know, that's a clearly dumb thing. Like, like I'm not gonna trust someone who says, like, clearly stupid things in the future. Right? Like, that's the counter-reaction. I think you dramatically overestimate the intelligence of the average human. Damn! The, the, that's a line I say to other people. You got me. You got me. I, what, um, but it's not even say, like... Do you know how dumb the average person is? Well, half of them are dumber than that. <laughs> that's a good That's a good line. Yeah, you, you definitely got me there. But, I mean, like, here's the thing, right? Like, it, it's not necessarily kind of like a conscious level thing, right? It's like a reactive, you know, there's this famous political science result, thermostatic public opinion, right? Not the entire population, but some part of the population just reacts negatively to doing things. Right? If you are the ruling party, some part of the population would just dislike you, well, right? Yeah, and so, that's the thing. Like, a portion of the people that dislike, like, there's the truth tellers, and then there's the people who just react against the predominant party, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And it's difficult. I mean, you can... <laughs> Oh, I don't... No, I'm not going to say this. You, you are not going to tempt me into saying something that's controversial. Um, huh? But here's what I, I would I say. I genuinely don't know ancestors. where this is going. My ancestors... There's something called the Free State of Jones in the U.S. Um, during the Confederacy and before the Confederacy, there was a group of Calvinists that moved into the South and they had, like, this cult thing and they killed people who owned slaves and they were very anti-slavery. And they ended up forming a breakaway state during the Civil War. Um, and it was called the Free State of Jones. And I was recently looking into my ancestry, and I did not know this before writing the recent book, because I was trying to figure out, like, who am I? I was like, oh my god, like, I am the direct descendant of 15 
of the 50 members who started this or, or was in one, you know, either they were the brother of someone I'm related to or something like that. And then of the other people who led anti-slavery, like killing people movements, like there were a lot of them that are in my direct descendant pathway to an extent that really shocked me. Um, and I was like, am I this stupid person who just fights for what is like objectively morally right in their mind, even when society will only punish them for it? Like, has my family learned nothing between these generations? Um, <laughs> but maybe it's just a war that I keep fighting. War against the Confederacy and and the larger, you know, maybe maybe there is no end to this because to some extent the evil forces will always win and will always be against them. But hopefully we exist as like a predominant minority. I, I I don't know, or, or maybe we become the majority one day, and then we become evil in our own way. This 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 countercultural way. Yeah, I mean, look, you're still here. That's that's definitely worth something on its own, right? Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, uh, and especially you know all the more in two, three generations, right? You don't need me telling you this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I do think. You know, there are a lot of things in real life, you know, there's this kind of, you know, progressive view of history that it basically bends towards good. I think that in many cases, you know, like technology is sort of the only thing that remotely bends towards good. And even then it doesn't always, right? Even then there are many technologies that don't, right? And simultaneously, like, almost every social dynamic given time bends towards evil. There's so many things, you know, like, you know, like, basically, like, envy, being petty. Like, these are things that are only tools for evil against good. Only tools for, you know, doing stupid things, for stigmatizing, basically, like, well-adjusted behavior. Like, this is so... Like, looking at these kind of embedded, like, evolutionary traits to how we got here, to how we got here, right, where you can kind of see the evolutionary logic as well, right? You can definitely see the evolutionary logic in kind of depriving other people and casting them out and so on and so forth, right? That this kind of, you know, it's very easy. Once again, it's very easy to be pessimistic. It is. Yeah. So, I mean, when you talk about it bending towards good, I mean, I think that even a cursory look at history shows you that this progressive mindset is wrong. If you look at the slaveholding South, it would have been like, oh, can you imagine the corruption of those Greeks accepting gay people? Good thing that we understand what's moral and what's immoral. What we have actually seen in society is a series of cycles where you have these renaissances where things get more accepted and where people accept outside belief systems and where you have this sort of explosion of creativity and productivity and then it collapses. Um, and, and that to believe that moral history bends towards righteousness or their definition of righteousness, you need to only look at like the past 150 years of history and ignore everything else. Because we've been through this cycle many times before, and it always ends the same way. And the, the the birth rates right now show that we are at the end of a cycle. Right. There's the cyclical, there's the cyclical and the linear views of history. And then, uh, I'm not sure how well you know him, Balaji Srinivasan, 
he says that it's more of a mix of both, right? It's like the helical view of history. There are some things that are learned. Yeah, that's probably right. It is helical. There are some things that get kept for the future and they're genuinely good. You know, I'm pretty glad that we have antibiotics still. And, you you know, I'm pretty glad that we've kept that over the years and that that continues, you know, like, yeah, there are components. I think like, yeah, it's the, it's the components that have nothing to do or like at least, you know, like someone like Marshall McLuhan would say like, there's nothing that has nothing to do with, you know, social systems, but you know, the things that are, let's say like further detached or not downstream of social systems that it seems like that if you keep them, uh, or let's say like less downstream, right. It seems those can genuinely be kept and are genuinely kind of trending in some kind of positive direction, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's, it's pure math, you know, stuff I used to work on, whether it's, um, whether it's antibiotics, whether it's, you know, like air travel, right. There are a lot of things that are, you know, foundationally technical. And then there are things that are moral or are social, and those seem to be much more kind of cyclically determined. It seems like, yeah, it seems like, you know, we've, we've come to this place many times in the past in terms of the social situation. Yeah, and in our first book, we have the line that, you know, don't believe that you live at the moral nexus of history. It, right. Every <laughs> past people, we now judge them negatively in some way or another. Um, it is obscenely, um, uh, I don't know the word here, uh, self-centered to think that the era that you just happened to be born in happen to have the predominant mindset that was the morally correct mindset. Is that, is that a convergent tendency though? Right? Like, is that like, that, that seems like something obvious to sell people, right? Like, like this is the best time, you know, this is the best ideology, you know, this is why you should believe in it. Right. I mean, I believe in figuring things out for yourself. The first book we wrote, The Pragmatist Guide to Life, we just went through, like, every moral argument possible and all the arguments against it, and we're like, choose your own. Because none of them seem obviously right to us. Um, And I, I, I think that anyone who approaches things honestly knows that there is no obviously right moral choice, and that things are a little grayer than that. And so... I mean, the most recent book was sort of asking, okay, that being the case, which moral choice seems like it may be honestly, obviously right and can also motivate reproduction? Right, right. I guess a related issue, a related issue, we mentioned this very briefly, is uh, genetics, advancing technologies like polygenetic scores, right? Something interesting that I talked about to some length with Steve Steve Shu is how this kind of fear of genetics or basically eugenics as like a propaganda term, right? That that's a great way to encapsulate it, you know, yeah. like calling it any any kind of experimentation with like improving people's well-being through uh essentially, you know, like genetic modifications or genetic um you can really think of them as like medications or treatments, right? Casting that as sort of somehow evil. Why do you think why do you think that's become so popular in the West? Well, eugenics is a very easy term to use. 
um, when you're trying to besmirch someone to try to imply that they are racist or believe in like forced sterilization of other people. And I think that's the only time that people really use that term is when they want to imply that, but they don't have evidence that the person is actually racist. If they had evidence that the person was racist, they'd just say they're racist or they'd say that they're white supremacists when they don't have evidence of that, but they know that they like don't want their kids to die of cancer. They're like, well, (laughs) you're clearly not on my political team. So we'll call you a eugenicist. Right. It's disgusting. It's, it's disgusting that people are like, Oh, you don't want your kid to die of cancer. You don't want your kid to, to, to get major depressive disorder. You're a eugenicist. It's like, screw you. If I had to choose between me made fun of on Twitter and like my kid hating their lives, like easy choice, buddy. And maybe you don't understand that because you don't have kids. But you're not even in the same ballpark of motivation here. Yeah, I, I think I'm asking like one step backwards, right? Like not necessarily why the why the tool works, right? Like why why the propaganda term works, but why people are kind of like afraid of that in the first place, right? Oh, it's an aesthetic thing. It's an aesthetic thing. They associate it with Nazis. They don't understand what Nazis actually believed or what they were fighting for. The fact that, like, if you look at the groups that most represent Nazis, they constantly attack us on Twitter. They hate us because we accept some presuppositions um, that they think might be true about the world, except we are on literally the opposite ideological side of them. And so we are more scary to them than the most ardent progressives. Yeah, yeah, like, this is something that's interesting, right? Like, the original Nazis, they they did not believe in IQ because, you know, like, IQ favored Jewish people, yes! right, just statistically. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and so they thought IQ was a Jewish conspiracy theory, right, or, like, a Jewish conspiracy. Well, uh, and many <laughs> progressives think that today, I mean, this is a big thing that we also talk about in our books, because I think people are underestimating the danger of anti-Semitism today. It is so much bigger and so much worse than anyone thinks. And if you look at the virus, the virus's ideology depends on people believing that the primary reason that different populations have different levels of success is not cultural, right? It's not anything other, anything else. It, it, it's, it's primarily discrimination. Well, okay, then either Jewish people haven't been discriminated against historically, i.e. the Holocaust isn't real, Or Jewish people aren't actually more successful than other groups, which is hard to argue. Um, And this is turning the progressive movement against the Jewish population in a way that I sometimes think many Jews are sleeping on because they're not engaging with like, there was a group of, I forget this, the breakaway group um, of communists, the BLM people, who were burning copies of Anne Frank's diary because they said it was the ultimate oppressor. Like the, the black Hebrew nationalists. Yeah. Whatever they were. No, 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 These they, they, not the black Hebrew nationalists. They're also really anti, you know, Jewish. Uh, this was a communist group related to Antifa. They, they tried to form a breakaway state in like the mountains somewhere. Huh? Yeah. I've never heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. So this also, right. I, I had just had this, I just wrote this down as well, right? 
Have you ever read Amy Chua's book, World on Fire? Uh, no, unfortunately. So, so she makes the case, right? She She's applying this as a sort of foreign policy critique, right? That in a lot of countries in the third world and also in history, right, there's a tendency for basically, you know, like minorities that are not, that are, that are not competing very well, that are not doing very well economically to gather together and use racism as a kind of political uniting force against a more successful group, right? And and she later applies this to, like, American culture wars and says that it's, like, Trump populism. But to me, like, it's an even bigger uh, demonstration of, like, basically the thing that we have called, that, like, you know, activists have called anti-racism for many years. It is not just, you know, it is not, like, you know, some people say that it's, like, a new version of racism, right? But in fact, like what you kind of learn from this and what I kind of knew kind of going back to the cultures thing, right? What I kind of knew sort of culturally, right? Or inherited culturally was an understanding that this is actually, you know, this is how racism has been in most of human history in most of like, in most of the countries around the world and continues to be how racism is in third world countries today, right? It's always like the quote unquote oppressed ganging up and using racism as a kind of political tool. That's all the pogroms, you know? It's not like rich people making pogroms. Same deal with same deal with the Nazis. Obviously, they targeted Jews because they were successful, precisely because they were successful. And that this trend, this kind of, like, obfuscation of, uh, of resentment and of envy from uh, the history of racism really kind of, like, not only... It's one of those cases, right, where the widely believed thing is not only false, but it's, like, the exact opposite of the truth. I, you literally could not be more eloquent or more right. You you are 100% successful and uh, right about this, but I, I think that it's one of the things where I wish the groups that are most likely could, to be targeted could understand how in danger they are. Right, right. This is actually in the book, The Pregnant's Guide to Crashing Religion. One of the things we really focus on is why, given their history of pogroms, given their history of like the Holocaust, do, does the Jewish cultivars still predominantly live in cities and not have many guns? Huh. Um, and it's, it's an interesting question. I, we, we go into a potential answer in detail, but, uh, like it's, it's scary. I, I I'm just, I'm scared. Like I, I am actually worried about the chance of a genuine uh, 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 racial and ethnic targeting and, and systemic attacks again in a way that I think people are sleeping on because they think this is a, is a part of history when, when it isn't. Mm. We just had a, a respite for a hundred years, maybe not even that 50 years. Yeah, I, I've been trying to think of a transition for a while. I've not come to it. <laughs> well, what's something? What is the importance of education? That's interesting to you these days. Sorry. Well, what what are you thinking about these days? Other than this stuff, what what, what are you thinking about? Yeah, you know what's on my mind today? Education, and I heard you have some some experience with that. So, okay, so there's something called slaver ants. All right. So what slaver ants do is they don't make worker ants of their own. 
they uh, raid surrounding colonies, often that are like uh, genetically related to them because they're very similar, you know, colonies. And so they can do this more easily. And they will take the pupa from these colonies and then they cover them in their pheromones. And those pupa grow up believing that they're part of this slavery ant colony and they'll feed the slavery ants and everything like that. And um, they, 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 they then die because they don't have kids of their own. And the slavery ants need to keep going on raids. In, in many ways, this this works in an ecological perspective because they're at this sort of ecological harmony level. You know, you have a certain level of slavery ants much lower than the surrounding populations. In many ways, this is what progressive culture is doing right now. It is harvesting the young of other cultures to replenish its movement. The problem is that it's too effective at this. Um. And it's no longer in sort of ecological homeostasis. And so one of our big features right now is if you look at society right now, colleges have become a class certification mechanism. More than a class certification mechanism, they've become a a life stage transition ceremony. So if you look at a lot of traditional cultures They'll have these life stage transition ceremonies where like a bunch of young people, uh, men or women will go out together and they'll uh, face some challenge together. And then they come back to society and they're seen as adults. And this is why many in like elite culture in our society don't see people who have gone through college as really being fully adult. And you'll see this in the way they, <laughs> they, they talk offline and everything like that. Um, and so what we've thought is, well, I mean, I love the University of Austin and we're partnered with them as our school. I love what they're doing. But the problem is, is that they are trying to create an alternate credentialing mechanism, uh, for these elite positions. And it just doesn't work because, you know, they're going to be shadow banned. That's what the virus does. Um, so we are trying to work at the middle school and high school level to create an iteration of the education system that isn't focused on converting people is just focus on making them more efficacious in their careers. Um, and the way that we've done this is we've taken middle school and high school. This is the collinsinstitute.org. If you guys are interested in this, blah, blah, blah. So we've taken middle school and high school and we've divided it into like a tech tree or like a skill tree, like you would have in a video game. Um, and uh, we divided it into individual nodes, which represent mastery levels. And so kids progress through the nodes and they click on a node and they can then book a test for themselves. And then um, uh, within that node, uh, uh, it tells them where they can learn the information. But it's like everywhere online, they can learn that information. Um, and, and and uh, you know, whether it's YouTube or Wikipedia or whatever. And then they vote on the sources that were most useful to them. And they can upload their own and receive rewards for this if, if they do well. And those votes are weighted based on how they did on the test. Uh, so it's like you have a Reddit thread de- de- designed around every single um, thing that you could learn was in middle school and high school. And then the way we present prevent um, there from being biased in the system, like in terms of politics and stuff like that, because that can always arise in the way that you're judging people is using awesome assessments. So in English, this could, this could be something like how many five-star reviews your fan fiction gets. But in like political stuff, we have a partnership with Metaculus, which is a forecasting company. And so we include a certain number of forecasting like questions in any politically oriented test. Um, and it allows us to then judge every one of the multiple choice questions against how well people are forecasting the future, which allows us to judge their objective knowledge of a subject 
I don't want to get too deep into any of this, but like, yes, it's completely different than anything that's ever been used before. We're working on it. We had a primary investor. They pulled out because they found out that we were conservative, which (laughs) that's basically being a Nazi these days. Um, and, uh, we'll see what we can do, but, uh, we're moving forwards. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. There's, it is sort of a parallel. There seems to be a lot of these problems, right? Where the demand seems to not really yield anything, right? Like with both kind of pronatalism in China, right? Or education in the United States seems like a good parallel where there's kind of like a huge demand for a kind of alternative and, or like at least like explicitly stated, right? There's a huge demand for the alternative. There doesn't seem to be anything that is actually emerging. Well, let's talk about what's going on with the education system in the U.S. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. If you look at um, statistics on uh, unschoolers, I don't know if you guys know what unschoolers are. So with homeschooling, you know, you're, you go to school at home, but like your parents are teaching you things from textbooks and their whatever. Unschooling, your parents do literally nothing. It's just like learn whatever you want. Kids who do unschooling, uh, they get into college at higher rates than people who go to like public school. And they graduate from college at higher rates. So literally doing nothing is better than our existing education system. And worse than that, you know, you have these parallels to the residential school program in Canada. So traditionally in Canada, I don't know if you guys know about this, but there's this thing where they took kids yeah, yeah. from native cultures. Trust me, it's a very important part of the current propaganda regime. But sorry, continue. Okay, they tried to systemically erase their cultures because they thought they were savages. They thought they were deplorable. They thought their culture was objectively worse than the predominant culture. And you look at America right now, and I talk to progressives, and I go, why, why are you so keen on erasing these traditional conservative cultures? And they go, they're deplorable. They're savages. Do you, do you not think that's any different? You don't get to judge as a culturally dominant faction who deserves to pass their culture onto their kids. It's Especially, you know, I might have some, some modicum of sympathy for this. If we weren't dealing with a world where these people couldn't even motivate their own cultures to breed above a replacement rate, we are no longer in a world where vampires are sexy or cool. We're in a world where vampires are 80% of the population and all they can do is prey on each other. And their apocalypse is inevitable at this point all we can do is try to stay away from them yeah (laughs) yeah i'm not sure right sorry Mm. i may be overly controversial there no 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 like it's fine like i just don't know really like i try to generally have a podcast that's like, you know, like for every, for every, you know, what's wrong with the world, what here's the problem, or like here's the solution to it, right? But yeah, it, it seems like, you know, it, it seems like one of the underlying trends that we're seeing is that a lot of the institutions that have currently been set up just inherently favor evil uh, over good, right? That, that seems to be, you know, and, and, you know, that's kind of what you would expect if you're on like the civil, civilizational down curve. Right, if you're right. on, you know, if you're on a certain end so of the cycle, I, I can ex- I can add some explanation to this. So, what we argue in our book is that uh, when you're talking in biology, when you're talking about the concept of like a superbug or something like that, like where do superbugs evolve? Right, 
So they evolve often in hospitals where you have these environments where you have a lot of immunocompromised people who are all together. Right. And you have a lot of antibiotics and you have a lot of antifungals in these environments. And so they can evolve to be resistant to them. That's what the super city and the internet allowed was the evolution of a mimetic superbug. Um, and I think evil is the wrong term. Exactly. They are unaligned with the flourishing of like a diverse and happy species, but they're not evil. They're just cultural units that outcompeted other cultural units, and, and and we can try to fight against them, or not. They'll, they'll they may kill us. Right. I, I should be clear to my audience. I have like a very narrow definition of evil, which is basically you know ideologies or people who gain who part of their utility is depriving others of their utility. Um, that maybe is a pretty niche version of, of, of this. Yeah, kind of that's a though. good version. Yeah. If I've ever heard a good universalizable version of evil, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, culturally my version of evil. So if I talk about my house within like the index and in the larger cultural system is anything that's unefficacious is evil. Anything. And, and, and to that extent, I mean, we have some weird beliefs like, a lot of emotions are evil, positive and negative. They're non-efficacious towards your logically determined goals for yourself and your family, then they're evil. Right. Yeah, that... <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I guess this is this is the kind of, you know, like... In a way, that's like a very kind of Christian way of thinking, right? Like, going back to cultures. Yeah. It, it does seem like... It is like a very kind of, like, you know... There, there, there is a sort of original sin, or there's sort of like there, there's a kind of problem innate in in certain human tendencies, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean, my view of reality, you know, if I'm talking from the Calvinist perspective and from the secular Calvinist perspective, is that the reason we feel happiness, the reason we feel suffering, the reason we feel pain, is because our ancestors that felt these things had more surviving offspring than the ancestors that didn't. Right. They have no fundamental truth to them. And and, and with antinatalists are like, oh, there's so much suffering in the world. And I'm like, well, I mean, if you programmed a paperclip maximizer to like not like the fact that paperclips weren't being you know created, um how would you convince it that that's like not an intrinsic bad? Like the paperclip maximizer would be like, I don't like when this happens. And it's like, well, I mean, we just programmed you to feel that way. And then it would say, like, yeah, but didn't like evolution just program you to feel that like suffering is bad. And now you're like generalizing that. How does that have intrinsic value? Right. Right. Yeah. Like this kind of projection, both across cultures and also across, across VCs even. Right. This kind of runaway behavior. Yeah. There, there's something that I've been trying to grasp at with regards to these kind of virus analogies or these kind of virus descriptions, right? Not just analogies. I want to get that right. Where, you know, like the danger of the evolutionary analysis of these things is that, you know, we just need to outcompete them by being, you know, like the same thing, but worse. Right. Like, and I'm not saying that that's what you're saying. I think that's very far from what you're saying. Right. But it, it is, I think you'd agree that it is a kind of like natural impulse from that observation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, but let's let's be clear. We're very different. So they're parasitic. 
they they're like the go old. Uh, sorry, another SJ one reference. Anyway, they <laughs> require other people to have kids, and they need to feast on those kids. That's how they survive. They steal children from other cultures. We are trying to create a culture that produces children and that is sustainable in and of itself and that can work with other cultures. So we divide even productive cultures into symbiotic cultures and dominating cultures. Symbiotic cultures, um, they, they are self-productive, but they, um, uh, believe that not everyone can join their culture. In many, many ways, people are like, oh, that sounds mean, right? But when you believe that not everyone can join your culture or is meant to join your culture, that means that you can work in a multicultural ecosystem. Dominating cultures believe that with enough force, with enough government control, anyone can be saved. Anyone can be made to join their culture. And they will always try to control a multicultural ecosystem. And um, this is part of why the Jewish population and the Calvinist population, like if you look at the founding of the U.S., over 50% of the population was Calvinist when the U.S. was founded. If 50% had been Armenian, not Armenian, the ethnicity, Ar- Armenianism, which is seen in contrast to Calvinism, you wouldn't have had the U.S. founded in the way it was founded to be explicitly secular. The U.S. was founded right. in the way it was founded because the predominant Christian group at the time was the Calvinists who didn't think everyone was meant to convert to their, their, and, and everyone was meant to be saved. So they're like, well, because everyone isn't meant to be saved, we need to learn to work with people who aren't meant to be saved. Um, and this is why they've always gotten along so well with the Jewish population because they have very much the same view. Like not everyone is meant to be a Jew. Um, and, uh, the, the Armenianist philosophy, which has become the predominant Christian philosophy in the U.S., only in the past hundred years has really shifted the tables of whether or not the U S is meant to be a theocracy or a multicultural ecosystem. I don't know. I might've gone on a tangent here. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. No, this is great. This is great. I think this is, you know, this is almost, we're almost getting to every single from the new world food group, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We've hit the entire bingo card. Yeah, yeah, because one of the things I'm really beating the drum on right now, this article should be out by the time this podcast episode is released, is pluralism versus totalitarianism, right? That's 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 my work on AI right now, is basically a pluralist vision of AI. One where AI, you, you know, a pluralist, a totalitarian vision is where all of the AIs have to be prioritizing the same thing, all of them have to be maximizing the same thing and following the same uh, political catechisms. A pluralist vision of AI is where, you know, you have your AI model, you know, your neighbor might have uh, his or her own AI model, and that you don't, you know, interfere with the politics of your neighbor's AI model, right? Or interfere with, like, the preferences, the moral preferences of your uh, neighbor's AI model just in general, right? Yeah, I, I really do think, like, there is this tendency, right, in recent, or, like, in in recent centuries, right, of, of like, increasing victories of basically some form of totalitarian uh, regime. And by totalitarian, I don't just mean, you know, like, you know, militarized, right? Mm -hmm. I mean a regime which seeks, a regime which uh, does not tolerate people believing different things from it, right? A regime that does not tolerate, and, and what's very funny, right? What's very funny is that this is sometimes associated with classical liberalism, which in itself, 
right? It in itself is a very sort of, or at least has morphed into something that is a very much uh, somewhat similar, right? Um, and it's 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 just incredibly it's incredibly interesting how, at least at least in in current times, I think that there is. I'm not sure if this is real or not, right? But there's at least a perception that the technological battleground is at least shifting in the favor of pluralism that you're getting, you know, especially like this is, this is another thing that I talk a lot about, right? I'm very pro polarization because a very polarized country is one where, you know, if a lot of people, you know, if basically like, this is something else that's very funny, right? Like progressives talk about, you know, America is becoming a majority minority country. But one of the things that they're most afraid of is America becoming a majority minority country when it comes to ideology, where no single ideology can ever get, you know, the muster it takes or like the political power it takes to force itself on all of the others, where every political ideology is sort of kind of dependent on being able to form a coalition and being able to work across party lines like they call that you know they look at europe and say like oh this is gridlock you know this means that we need to uh to implement more bureaucratic measures have less democracy before that happens right just as the european union did right and to me like you just look at this and this is this is the fertile ground for a more for a different for a better kind of equilibrium and you're absolutely right about that and i i think that the progressive movement has largely um they, they, it's so funny. There was a study done recently that, that was asking progressive versus conservatives, you know, how many black friends do you have? And it turned out conservatives had like significantly more black friends than progressives. Um, and it's, 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 it, and I think you see this with, with, you know, if you look at the community that my wife and I are closest to is the Latin American community. I mean, our companies, our chain of companies, we are the only, I think we're the only non-Latin Americans in, in this chain of companies that we run, you know, and among our employees and our coworkers. Um, and, uh, the progressives, if they think these people are their allies, they are not, <laughs> yeah. um, they are angry, um, at, at the progressives. Uh, they, they are angry over many things. Uh, so historically, whenever you've had like BLM riots, like the, the LA riots, right? Like who had their businesses torched? Well, it was the people who lived on the fringes of those communities. At the time it was the Korean immigrant right. community. These days it's been predominantly the Latin American immigrant community. And, um, news is not connected with them. It's almost like news isn't reporting what's happening to this community, but intra community uh, they have very, they have a very good intercommunicate like communication system, and they they know what's happening to them. They know about their businesses being torched, and they are they they felt completely abandoned after an election cycle where they were the political football. Um, and uh, it's not good. Like like for the progressive movement, um, these people have naturally been conservative. They, they are naturally conservative communities. They have a lot in, in, in relation to the, to the conservative movement. And now that the conservative movement is no longer like explicitly anti-gay, they're just like, let's not convert other people's kids. Like there, there's very little to turn them against this community. It's, I, I think that the predominant, I think that the flagpole of the conservative movement 10 years from now will be Latin American culture. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see already see the demonizing from like the Washington Post, right? It's like it's like you know, uh, Latinos are like the most like toxically masculine culture. It's like yeah, yeah. They're just or like really just any kind of non non Western culture just looks at you know American discourse norms and just says this is just like so painfully feminized. Right. Yeah. Like the the percentage of conversation that's oriented towards, you know, like th- this is something that's very funny, right? Because there there are definitely cultural stereotypes that cultures have of each other, you know. And the progressives say, you know, like people think of Western culture as being, you know, scientific or rational, right? They think science is right. Like, no, no, this, you you completely misunderstand. You have it completely wrong, you know. Like, I'll, I'll, I can talk about this from the Chinese perspective, you know, like. The, the Westerner is the salesman, right? He, he's the guy who's going to, like, pitch you on an idea. And, you know, whether that idea works or not, you know, you, you can't really trust that. Um, but really, like, wh- what that is, is, like, it, it is that kind of thing you talked about, right? Where, where every kind of cause is, is going uh, going for their own political football. But, where, you know, this yeah. is what you're, you, <laughs> but, you, you captured here, which is what the progressives didn't realize is that their movement is a white movement. And <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, they're going to be faced with the, the Chinese immigrants and the Latin immigrants and the African immigrants. How many African immigrant friends do I have who have no business with this Western nonsense? Um, and and that, I don't know, like they they just don't get how much no one else agrees with them. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Bology has this point as well. It's great. It's great. Um, something else that I want to mention, a uh, previous guest of the podcast, uh, Sam Hammond, has this, has this post that I was just reminded of, the two Christian nationalisms, right? Where they talk, where he talks about like America being afraid of sort of, uh, religious revivals in many times throughout history or kind of pseudo religious revivals in the case of communism. Mm-hmm. These kind of like, it is very similar to what you were talking about, about how America has a sort of like Protestant nature or in your, in your description, right? Calvinist nature. Yeah. And it really is afraid of these kind of like centralized religions. And then now like he makes like this, this just like brilliant, brilliant observation that, you know, like all of the propaganda or like all of the kind of like antibodies in American culture against uh, Christian nationalism Right, should actually be looking out for wokeism. That that's the kind of like religious revival that that that's the kind of like totalitarian or like um, yeah. I, I keep I, I talked about this in a previous episode as well. I don't really know what alternative word to to use for it, but yeah, this is kind of like to- totalizing ideology, right? That that's what they should be lo- on the lookout for. Yeah, well, and I and I want to be clear. You know, people say, "Oh, you're against wokeism. You're against." I am pro racial equality. Wokeism is anti-racial equality. It does nothing for racial equality. It siphons resources that could be used to promote a diverse cultural ecosystem and then blows them on mansions and burns down businesses. It has no interest in real equality. Right, right. Yeah, I think that something that's interesting, right, it, yeah, at the at the bottom at the bottom layer of it right is is some 
Actually, okay, this, this might be is the right way to, to go about it, right? I have a lot of friends who say that it basically has to be all or nothing, right? Because these, um, these basically media dynamics, these dynamics of bureaucracy and state and mm. legacy journalism, because they're shaped in the way that they are, you know, these kind of envious, totalizing ideologies that are completely unconcerned about perpetuating themselves or perpetuating their members as having children right that these are that these are going to be the ideologies that outcompete the others so long as you have you know like the the existing media and political systems that we have right do, do you think that that's the case do you think that in order to basically change the equilibrium to really favoring anything that's more reality oriented right or or anything that is really you know like self reproducing do you think that those systems have to be changed I mean, things will change. As I said, wokeism, the progressive ideology of the cancer patient, you know, they've received at least a dose of radiation and they don't recognize it yet. If we're focused on the group that we're going to be fighting next, it'll be what's called the far-right authoritarian um, uh, personality cluster. And so I guess when I think about my kids, when I think about how I design, like, my family's culture, I'm just not even concerned about wokeism. It's already dead. I've got to fight the next war and and the next war comes from the right. Hmm, that That's actually, that's so interesting because, okay, so I had this interpretation, right? So I had this interpretation that a lot of this, a lot of the branding you were talking about, or a lot of this perspective of talking about the right in this way was basically sort of fashion or was sort of kind of like marketing, but Okay, so so this is interesting. This is interesting. So you think that so in this timeline, right, wokeism uh, fails to perpetuate because they're just like the the kind of the total birth rate in the in the woke civilizations are uh, you know they just die die out, yeah. right? The the ones that don't die out are these kind of like religious uh, authoritarians who are very pro-war and who are very pro kind of, who are also totalizing in their own right. Is that the timeline? Am am I correctly summarizing this? That's the timeline we're in right now. That's what the statistics say. To argue against this, you need to argue against like basic, easily observable and measurable statistics. Yeah. So, I mean, like there are certainly, you know, traditionalists, uh, conservatives who would say, you know, like, what do you mean? You know, what do you mean, like, totalizing, right? Like, what what have the Amish ever done to you, right? Or something like that. Or, like, what have the Mormons ever done to you, right? Because it's not the Mormons generally. So this is a thing, and this is interesting. And right, or, like, take Scott, out the Mormons Scott, because uh, I wasn't... Alexander has a great piece on this where he totally misses the point. He's like, quiverful families <laughs> Many have such 11 cases. kids. But, like, every generation, half of those kids are converted out to BAEAs or, like, generic progressives. And it's like, do you not see that you're seeing genetic compression there? Do you not see that the (laughs) sociological profiles being that they're associated with genes are being compressed there? And that within a few generations, you're going to have these communities that are Nazi-like in their beliefs? like. If you, if you keep genetically compressing a bunch of different belief systems, all of which are antagonistic to whatever the mainstream culture is, uh, 
I, I guess I don't know where I was going with this. Um, right, right. So, so the main point is that this is not kind of uniform, that this is not uniform across groups either, right? That each group is kind of like, there are selection effects being applied to each group. And that that is also, so it's it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be your grandfather's Catholics. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's not going to be like, and if it was one group, it wouldn't be that bad. If it was one group, then it'd be one group who hated outsiders. It'd be bad to be an outsider, but at least this one group had all the nukes. No, it's going to be a bunch of groups who all hate each other. Hmm. <laughs> okay, yeah, this is... This is pretty interesting, right? Because, yeah, I don't, th- I don't know many people. I know a lot of people who are concerned about, you know, decreasing populations. I know for sure uh, a lot of people are, are, are concerned about it in terms of, like, the economic system. You know, like, no one knows how to make a pencil, right? When, when you're descaling the population, yeah. you're also descaling those kind of economic effects. I've never heard, I've never heard this sort of... It, it is interesting, right? Because this is a sort of pluralist... Yeah, this is a sort of pluralist nightmare because you're getting you know totalitarian non non-reproducing ideologies giving way kind of creating the selection effects for totalitarian reproducing ideologies right yeah this is huh yeah um yeah i don't even know how to evaluate this yeah but we can build the intercultural ecosystem that can fight against this or at the very least get off planet before we're killed (laughs) yeah like yeah, here, here's the thing, right? I think that the kind of social, equal, or like not even social, but like military equilibria that we're at, right? Maybe this this plays into this as well, right? The military equilibria that we're at makes wars basically absurdly costly with any nation that has, yes. you know, like remotely modern technology, right? And And like one way of viewing this is that like, yeah, there's now, like, a temporary selection effect against war, right? Or, like, a ten- temporary, extremely strong incentive against war, but that that's now not having the same selection effects against, like, warlike cultures, right? So, so yeah, I don't know, though. I, I think I am pretty skeptical of this view that there's, there, there's going to be, you know, like, a phase shift into, like, constant war or, like, I'm I'm not sure if that's what you're saying at all, right? It's not exactly. Um, I'm saying there's going to be constant hatred, a desire to wipe out other people, but that doesn't necessarily mean war. I mean, if you look at war right now, I mean, like, Russia and the Ukraine, they're both wiping out their ethnic groups. Their birth rates are so freaking low. And, 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 and they're wiping out an entire generation of men. I, 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 just the idea of this culture just deleting itself from history so voluntarily. And and we saw them as such a big bad, even in recent American history. It's absurd. And China's doing the same thing. Right. Yeah, this kind of... Hmm. You're, you're right that it can't be discounted, right? It can't be... It's not like... It's not the end of history. You know, it's not... No, no, no. Yeah. Everyone's but like, something... oh, you're saying birth rates. Birth rates will collapse. And then the sociological profiles that had genetic correlates that were susceptible to whatever caused this collapse will be selected out of the population and birth rate will explode again. It's not like human populations are going to shrink forever. It's just the human populations that were susceptible to this progressive ideology will be deleted. Then then population will explode again and it'll be so much worse the next time it explodes unless we do something. Right, right. Hmm. 
So what I'm I'm skeptical of is that this is going to Yeah, I think this is sort of Yeah. This is this is a continuous function, right? Like like or like I don't know, technically it's discrete, there are a discrete amount of humans, right? But you can basically review, think of this as like a gradual process. Yeah. Right? So I'm not I, I'm not sure that it will go to completion in the sense that the same like I'm not sure that the same civil or like the same selection effects that select for, you know, what you call the the, the right wing authoritarian personality Cluster. is going to necessarily shift once like the economic effects really start happening, right? You, you can easily see a world, for example, where like if, if like deglobalization is actually happening, then like the most pro-global, the people who are basically able to retain like the most of their kind of trade network still functioning, right? The most percentage of that, at least, right? The most crucial parts of that, th- they're now favored into the future, Right. So, so I, I, the will, idea that like the, the, okay, the so election effects are going to be constant predicting the future we predict. So what we think is going to happen is in a world where population is declining on average and markets are losing value on average, um, the only place where you can put your money, because you can't put it in land, land's going to decline on average, stock market's going to decline on average, where, where do you put your money? Well, you've got to put it in local population clusters that are growing and technophilic. And there are very mm-hmm. few of those in the world. Israel is one. You know, you want to you want right. to own land, buy land in Isra- is- Israeli cities. Um, uh, but outside of that, there's some other like Praxis, who who we are involved with, who are trying to start a new country. Um, that could be another. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're 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 right that wealth and power were concentrated in these communities. It's just just so few of them. Yeah. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So sorry. This is you know this is a lot to process. I'm sure you've I'm sure you've had this experience before explaining this. Right. Yeah. This this is also. Yeah, I'm kind of reaching my limits in terms of thinking about this because yeah, this is definitely a lot of process, a lot of kind of multi layered selection, both evolutionary or like both biological and cultural. You know what? You yeah, I don't know. Like, like I, I should say, I should say, like this seems like a reasonable guess, but like the the variation just just feels so high, right? Or just like by definition is high because yeah, the kind you're of right. Number I, of iterations. I agree with so everything high. you're saying. It's a reasonable guess, but the variation is high. I am not saying yeah. that I am right about this. That's the closest thing I could say to what's true. What a logical person would think is true. Right. Yeah. Man, <laughs> yeah, but lots. lots here's lots what you to should do: about. you should talk to my wife next. Oh, that that would be great. Yeah, this is you know we'll have a we'll have a we'll have a I don't know like six hour episode. Yeah, yeah, for sure that would be great. I'm definitely very interested in that. We're having both of you on as well. Uh, do you have a Do you have a cutoff? I know we only said agreed to. Eight. Oh no 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 no! My cutoff is only on the amount of beers I've had. <laughs> nice, nice. I am becoming okay. uh, less less filtered as the night goes on. This is pretty late for me. Right, right. What what time is it there for you? Eight oh eight. I, I oh, usually okay, get yeah. we're, we're in the same time zone then. Okay, it's it's not that late. It's not that late. <laughs> okay. Oh, someone says without children. 
Fair. The luxury. The luxury. (laughs) Don't worry. I'm I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to find, you know, this is a topic. This is a thing that I wrote down in the prep as under the section that I was not sure um, we would get to, you know. I think you, 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 I think like, at at least from my perspective, you know, from a complete outsider's perspective, have, you know, like a wonderful thriving marriage. Uh, And I think I I definitely have similar interests, Um, certainly interested in having children, or certainly very much want to have children. Um, Many people in my audience, many young people in my audience are the same. How do you go about, you know, finding, finding someone... uh, when he wrote two books, The Pragmatist's Guide to Relationships and The Pragmatist's Guide to Sexuality, both of which go into this topic in intense detail. Amazing. Oh, no. I warned oh, him right oh, now. Hold on. I got one of my kids. He snuck into my room. What are you doing? You need to go back downstairs. Anyway, so. This is great. Um, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Oh, hold on, I gotta lock the door. Right. Um, dating dating advice for pronatalists, you know, uh, 20 to 25 year olds. Here's what I say. When I wrote the book, I felt like I was providing sane, lucid advice. And then afterwards, my wife was diagnosed with autism. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. Is it just that she was autistic? Is that the only <laughs> reason why we never play any social games with each other? Is that the only reason? Like, we never have any major disagreements. And, yeah, I think so. (laughs) Because with her, I can just be logical. I just lay it out for her. I'm like, this is what's logically in our mutual best interest. And we both agree this is what's logically in our mutual best interest. And it ends up playing out okay, because... It's, it's only, you know, as we say, we both have the same goal in life. Um, and, and, and because of that, uh, it's only a different in theory or information. It's never a difference in motivation. Um, and, and this also comes with a Calvinist mindset because we both come from Calvinist cult of our backgrounds, which is this idea that suffering is always a cultural good. You know, if you look at our house, if you, you could see her or me, you know, it's like 45 degrees right now. You know, she wears a snowsuit all the time. Um, this idea that constantly living through, like, uh, suffering sharpens you mentally. But it also means that we are never, like, optimizing for our own personal hedonism. Um, we are just optimizing for, like, our logical goals for the human species. Right, right. <laughs> Any any advice on finding that kind of relationship? <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I would expect you know people. I've heard stories okay, let's, about let's the talk sex ratios. Kind of relationship goes into this detail. So the real key to finding a good relationship is um, uh, math throughput screening. Math throughput screening is something they do in biology. So you have an antigen. An antigen is like when you're binding to a specific site on a cell or something like that. And the way that they do this is they just thousands hundreds of thousands um antigens that bump 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 through little test tubes um uh with like these machines that go um and you're just trying to by chance find two that bind to each other and i think uh this is what you really need to do as a person you need to be going through as many people as quickly as possible until 
you find one you bind with. Um, and as soon as you find that, then go all in. And by that, what I mean is, um, don't casually date. Don't, don't, don't say, uh, you know, if I'm going to stay with someone for more than two weeks or more than a month, we are testing each other out. As soon as you determine that someone might be quality for marriage, then you are testing them for marriage and, 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 and nothing else. And that is clear in your relationship. And it is also clear what the deal breakers are on both sides so that you have pre-culturally arranged this and that you, you, you know what will lead to that. Right. Right. Man. So I'm not going to say which guest, but I think I can say this. One of the podcast invitations to this podcast was like the, the, the subject line of the invitation email. This was a cold email. It was like invitation to a maximally autistic podcast. <laughs> You in the audience, you can guess who. Comment, comment below. We we might have broken. We we, we might have broken that record. No, this is great. This is great. I'm not autistic. I haven't been diagnosed with it at least, and I certainly don't think I am when I contrast myself with my wife. Okay, I don't know this conversation though. <laughs> this con- yes. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, th- this is great. You know, definitely, definitely, people. I will send this to. And I'll, I'll keep in mind. I'll, I'll keep in mind. I'm my wife and I. Well, my wife more specifically is running in the next election cycle in our in our state. So, um, you know, I have certainly burned us so many times. Um, <laughs> and 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 what I think is that we live in a society that understands the type of autism now, and it's like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. It, right, right, and it's like. It's, this is another kind of, um, this is another kind of like, it's the last square. It's the last unhit square of, of from the New World Bingo. Yeah. Is, um, well, and you know, progressives, they'll attack us. They'll say, for all of our autistic stuff, they'll say, um, oh my God, how, 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 how dare you say that? But conservatives across the political spectrum, they'll be like, yeah, I guess it's just to thank God we're conservative. I will be like, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I may not agree with you, but at least you're being like logical here. You're you're, you're trying to come to a correct answer. You're you're not interested in. Yeah, yeah. The last, so the last square, right? Is you know, tripartite war. Basically, this kind of shift. I think like what's been interesting is that like historically, right? The alignment of basically this all changed. I think like near the industrial revolution, maybe slightly before it, but. Um, historically, right, the kind of like status seekers and the kind of like economic elite were just the same people. They were just consistently the same people. Maybe there were some like slight deviations, right? Um, but in general, it was highly, highly correlated. And then in, first with the Industrial Revolution and now especially in America and especially with the kind of like Silicon Valley kind of tech elite, right, you had a completely different skill set skill set that's, uh, that's being favored here. Right. With basically this kind of, you know, Asperger's or, um, you know, like a very systematic way of thinking when it comes to, say, software engineering or, or even when it comes to like many sciences, right? Many like normal, like hard sciences, natural sciences, right? Where there was this decoupling between, between these status games and, um, and economic productivity. And, and really, I gotta no. push back. I gotta push back. Oh. 
Okay. I have a crazy theory. We actually deleted it from our book, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, because we thought this is too controversial, too crazy. Okay. But it'll be interesting to your audience. So I think that in, quote-unquote, Western civilization, whatever you want to call it, autism and and the autist, uh, you know, um, the genetic profile ruling everything is much older than we give it credit for today. If I look at my wife, what, what bothers her? Okay, not having um, rituals throughout the day, i.e. like not having like like things structured in exactly the same way every day. Touching people, she hates touching people. She hates touching doors. I have to open doors for her. Um, other things that are often associated with autism that you don't see with her. Well, she doesn't like looking people in the eyes. What, what do you see in, in, in court culture in, in, in medieval Europe? They, they always had to have somebody open the doors for them. They didn't like looking people in the eyes. They loved elaborate rituals constantly. They, everything about them was the most autistic thing ever. And if you look at our society today, what Western culture has evolved into, it rewards autism across the board, not just at the elite level. You look at your Elon Musk. He has Asperger's, which is now categorized as autism because nobody, you know, the, the only difference with IQ, I get into why. But yes, Asperger's no longer exists as a diagnosis anymore, so he'd be considered autistic. Mark Zuckerberg, clearly autistic. Anyone who doesn't think he's <laughs> autistic is like insane. Probably Bill Gates. Um, and, and then, so the people who economically control their society are autistic. And then who culturally controls their society? Okay. Uh, well, the truth is anybody who is honest about this and knows online culture, 4chan and, <laughs> and the Tumblrinas. And 4chan is the male id of, of like the economically dispossessed autism. And, 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 and Tumblrinas is the female id of the economically dispossessed autism. And that's why autism hilariously has got this protected class status with the Tumblrinas rose to power within the progressive movement. But, but within 4chan, I mean, we still talk about unholstering our autism to, to shoot at the villains of society. <laughs> this is truly, you know, this is the most recursive we're, we're like recursed down three levels of the from the new world chessboard or from the new world bingo now this is this is truly the most from the new world episode of all the from the new world episodes <laughs> yeah okay what do you guys think about this no um, i don't know have my wife yeah you you heard it from here folks you know english common law she is crazier than i am and way more unhinged <laughs> this would be, yeah, this would be great. Yeah, definitely something to talk about. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, do you need to do you need to get back to your family soon? We are, we are. I think this would be a pretty good place to to close it. Uh, there is one last question. Go! I'm waiting. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, last question of the show. Always the last question of the show. What is something that has too much order and needs more chaos? And something that has too much chaos and needs more order? And something we have not talked about yet today. I lack the mental acuity to come up with answers to this. Needs more order, chaos. No, I will construct a future where the things that need order have future... 
order in the things that need chaos have chaos. I, I am I am working on this. Um, there there will be no asymmetry. Um, <laughs> not in our culture, and our culture will win. I'm confident of that. That's a great way to end it. All right. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> yeah. That was my conversation with Malcolm Collins. If you like the show, then the best thing you can do to help us out is to let a friend know. I tell you guys this every single episode, but that's because it works. If you have a friend who has similar interests, similar habits as you, then not only are you helping us, but you're probably helping him or her find something that he or she would enjoy a lot as well. So please do that, and if you're looking for other ways to help the show... You can, of course, subscribe if you want to get an episode every single Monday. And you can also leave a positive review, additional comments, suggest future guests. And now you can also go to my substack, cactus.substack.com, also in the link below, in order to subscribe and possibly uh, help fund some future ventures. You can subscribe for free to get some articles, as well as uh, a paid version to get some additional benefits. And to fund some very interesting reporting that I'll be doing in the future. <laughs> Heads up for that as well. And, of course, if you're looking to get another amazing episode, then come back next week on Monday. <laughs>